Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Etrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag from FirestormFan.com. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.net. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing very well. Let's get our S's in gear. <laughs> See what I did there? Oh, how long have you been waiting to say that? Oh, since the last issue, certainly. <laughs> well, buddy, I'm excited. I, You know, we're running a little late. Um, we're like, I don't know, we're like six weeks rather than four weeks I for think, the No, I think solution. we're just one week. I think we're just one. Well, whatever it is. We apologize for being late, folks. The holiday, we didn't want to dump it on Memorial Day. And uh, also, just we wanted to make sure we, we gave it enough space to get it done uh, and make sure we do it right. This show really means a lot to us. You know, I was, I, uh, I was listening to J. David Weeder's podcast the other day, uh, Daredevil. It's Dave's Daredevil podcast, who, by the way, I totally screwed. Last Who's Who, I, I pimped the Daredevil trade paperbacks. The, the piece I forgot to say was because you should read those Frank Miller trade paperbacks and listen to Dave's podcast. I didn't even say that. Anyway, and he said he felt like the Daredevil show was the show, was the podcast he was always meant to do. <laughs> And like, <laughs> it's funny that you say that about a technology that then only existed like a couple of years ago. Well, no, he's he's done a lot of other podcasts. No, I know that. It's just sort of funny that you're always meant to do something that basically didn't exist until like four years okay. ago or something like that. <laughs> well, where I'm going with it is like, I love the Fire and Water podcast. It's a blast. It really is, and I think it gives us a chance to do so many different creative outlets. But I feel like maybe, well, that show is critical to our podcasting and our in our experience and everything. I think this is the show we were meant to do at some point. <laughs> I really do. Like when Dave said that, I was like, that's who's who for me. It's like I love this so much. So. We have bizarrely sort of staked out our claim on this particular obscure corner of the DC Universe the way Scott Gardner and Mike Bailey have the All-Star Squadron and, and yeah. you said and uh, the aforementioned Daredevil podcast that Jay David does. You know, yeah, there is, you know, there really isn't going to be anybody, I think, who's ever going to bother to cover who's who on a podcast after after we're all done in uh, 2033. 20, uh, <laughs> if they do, they've, they've, got, they've got big shoes to fill. That's all I'm going to say. All right, folks. Well, we're going to kick this off by thanking our sponsor, InStock Trades. InStock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Uh, I was going to go first, but that bastard Rob Kelly stole my submission. So, Rob, why don't you tell him the great book that you picked? Yes, uh, Showcase Presents Sea Devils, who are, of course, in this book. Uh, these stories are from Showcase 27 through 29, plus Sea Devils 1 through 16, where they face villains like the Octopus Man, the Undersea Ghost, the Flame-Headed Watchman, and more. How, how Aquaman didn't inherit these villains, I don't know. Uh, the writer is Robert Kaniger and other and, uh, and others. The artist is, of course, Russ Heath. The cover is by Russ Heath. It is beautiful. The whole reason I am recommending this, other than, of course, the Sea Devils are in this issue of Who's Who, is the artwork. 
Russ Heath is one of – I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Russ Heath is one of the best guys ever to do comics. The sea Devil, His Sea Devil's work is absolutely gorgeous. I will admit, the couple of Sea Devil stories I've read from the time kind of bore me. But the artwork, oh, really? the artwork is so beautiful that I just look at it. You know, it's one of the few comics that I'm willing to just sort of gaze at because Russ Heath, Russ Heath did such a good job. Now, I'm willing to, to pick this book up and give the Sea Devils another chance. But even if it, the stories aren't great, I don't care. I will, double, I will enjoy looking at the artwork. It's 512 pages in black and white. Normal price, $19.99. In stock trades, has it for 42% off, $11.59 for over 500 pages of uh, underwater adventure, not featuring Aquaman for some strange reason. Uh, but uh, yeah, check out the Sea Devils. It's you know classic gold, uh, Silver Age fun. I tell you, I really want this trade. Like I, I've really been thinking a lot about it. I think I'm going to order it. Um, I, sea Devils have been a group of characters I've always sort of loved, but never followed. So I, this is one that's really on my. Mm, I may get that uh, list. Uh, I'm going to actually pimp two different trades that are not. Classic, but they are related to entries we're going to do real quick. Classic. Uh, classic. Uh, the first is Shade the Changing Man, Volume 1, American Scream, trade paperback. This is one in the early, early days of Vertigo. This was a series that launched, written by Peter Milligan, art by Chris Boccolo and Mark Pennington. Really? <laughs> re- what? Did I say his name wrong? No, no, no. That, uh, those issues of Shade the Changing Man that are reprinted yeah. uh, feature uh, Spotted Blacks by yours truly. No way. <laughs> That's another Tales from the Cubert School. We'll, we'll tell, tell some other time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, well, this collects the first six issues. And, man, this series will blow your mind. I haven't reread it in a number of years. It's actually one of the few comics I've got out to reread. Actually, the stack is sitting, waiting for me to reread it. This comic was such a trip. I loved it. It was a big departure from the original Shade of the Changing Man, but really, really great stuff. If you like Peter Milligan, if you like what he did either on the X titles or some of the other stuff he's done uh, for DC, uh, wow, just check it out. Shade of the Changing Man, Volume 1, American Scream. The other one I want to mention was Sandman Mystery Theater, Volume 7. Picked this one for a specific reason. Uh, this volume is called Mist and the Phantom of the Fair. It collects issues 37 through 48. I'm sorry, for 44. But the whole point of it is it, it talks about the Phantom, the world. Blah, 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 easy for me to say. The 1939 New York's Fair, which is actually all tied in with Sandman's origin, which we're going to talk a little bit about in this issue. It's written by Matt Wagner and Steven Siegel, uh, art by Guy Davis. If you've ever flipped through into the Sandman Mystery Theaters, you know it's really deep, deep, heady stuff. Uh, a lot of hate crime stuff. Really interesting the way. Uh, Wesley Dodds and his girlfriend Dion, Dion, Dion work together, and uh, really, really great stuff. So you can pick up Shade the Changing Man. Normally retails for seventeen ninety nine. You can get it for forty two percent off, ten dollars and forty three cents for one hundred and sixty eight pages. Or you can pick up Sam and Mystery Theater Volume Seven. Normally retails for nineteen ninety nine. Get it forty two percent off, eleven dollars and fifty nine cents for two hundred pages. Pick up this great stuff, people. So, jeez, why? Why aren't you on in-stock trades right now? Oh, they, they never listen wrong. They never listen. Uh, this episode of Fire and Water po- – I'm sorry, Who's Who podcast, again, is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more, and we thank them for their sponsorship. So – uh, here we are, back in another episode of Who's Who, and today we're going to be tackling Volume X 
X, which is volume 20 for those of you Roman numerally challenged folks. Now, um, Rob, I have like six pages of handwritten notes and like three different Word notepad files. I have so much in this. I'm really excited about this. Folks, if you're not familiar with uh, Who's Who and you're starting in this episode, um, just the, not going to give you all the details of it, but just things to know going in to remind you, if you will. Every character we're going to talk about is going to get a full page dedicated to them, unless we say otherwise. And in the foreground, you're going to get we're going to we're going to describe the foreground character who's in full color, and they're going to have a special logo. And the background is going to be a single color image, which we call the sur, which is called a surprint. It's going to be depicting the origin or some aspect of the character, along with a close up of their face without their mask. And then you get all the text, which is going to be like personal data, height, weight, history, powers, all that stuff. Our goal is that you don't have to have the issue in front of you. We're going to put up ten to fifteen of these things up on the Tumblr on our Tumblr. What's Rob? What's that address? Fire and water podcast.tumblr.com. There you go. Fire and water podcast.tumblr.com. Check it out. You'll see a lot of these entries out there. I, I the, the who's who uh, Tumblr entries really are the ones that get the most attention on Tumblr as well. Sure. So definitely do it. And if you're on the social media talking about this podcast, please use the hashtag pound FW podcast. That will help get the word out there. So, um, all right. Specifically, this issue, number 20, was cover dated October 1986. Actually hit the shelves, set your Wayback Machine to July 17th, 1986. Summer of 86, folks. Where were you during the summer of 86? Yeah, you were buying Who's Who number 20. That's what you were doing. And uh, to give you a little perspective, this issue hit the shelves exactly one week after Man of Steel number one. So it gives you kind of a touchstone there. And it's one month before Legends number one. So some pretty big DC events right around this episode, this uh, issue. So, uh, by the way, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of, Com- of DC Comics for those dates. So we got a cover by Paris Collins and Dick Giordano back after last issue's Ernie Cologne. What do you think of the cover? Um, it's not bad. Um, you know, it's it's certainly better than the one by Ernie Cologne. Again, I love Ernie Cologne, but as we all know, that cover was not particularly great. Um, I can't at all argue with the choice of character display. I mean, Sergeant Rock deserves to be the main character, and he yep. is. And then you've got Saturn Girl, who's sort of just next to him, which I guess is one of the other bigger ones because she was from the Legion and it was a bigger book. And there is a lot of interaction. This is there aren't a lot of character compared to other Who's Who covers. This is a fairly minimal uh, cover. Um, yeah. The, the the poses, the body poses, make me think Ernie Cologne had something to do with this. And I'm going to say that specifically that Shadow Lass. That's an Ernie Cologne pose. That is really? flat out an Ernie Cologne post. So I wouldn't it wouldn't shock me at all if the layout for this cover was done by Ernie Cologne and then Paris Collins did the pencils. I guess I should have uh, emailed him and, and asked. But that did just something about the way Shadow Lass is. I'm like, that just looks like an Ernie Cologne drawing. But I like the interactions. We see Sarge Steele uh, apprehending Shimmer, and you've got Sandman blasting Sabak, and you've got Sargon holding the DC bullet in his hands. And, uh, I didn't even notice that. Yes, and then Sandy, the Golden Boy, is and Seraphan are stretching Rubber Duck. <laughs> uh, you've got Scalp Hunter about to bonk Shaggy Man in the head with his tongue. No, off. he's not going to bulk him. He's going to scalp him. Scalp him. Okay. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Uh, Shade the Changing Man is scaring Scarecrow. Nice touch. Uh, oh, my gosh. I didn't even put that together yeah. either. And the shark is swimming in the wake of the Sea Devils. So there's a lot of really fun interaction on this one. And Scavenger. And, sca- and scavenger, yes. 
Now, my, one of my favorite things here is uh, is that Sergeant Rock is the main character, as you said, and he is specifically surrounded by a bunch of beautiful women. He's surrounded by Shakira, Saturn Girl, Saturn Queen, Sensor Girl, who's actually saluting him, oddly enough. Um, you know, Sergeant Rock, you think about it, you know, he's been out in the war all this time. He's seen so much combat and probably hasn't seen a lot of ladies. So, you know, nothing's easy in Easy Company, but he might be hoping some of these girls are. I don't uh, think I don't think Sensor Girl is is saluting because she's got both her hands up to her forehead, not just one. She's got both. Well, she's Oh, you know what's weird? It's missing a line. Yeah. But it's, it's so both, I didn't even realize yeah, she had both hands. She's yeah. getting a better view of Sergeant Rock's guns I guess so. and Amina's yeah, well, muscles. He's a manly man. Yep, yep. Um, that with with uh, Sandman blasting Savick, you notice the other Sandman is actually throwing sand at the Sandman. Yes. Which is kind of fun. <laughs> I, I don't like Sensei. He's a little too – or Sensei. How do, they, how do you say that? Sensei. Sensei. I don't like Sensei so prominent. I mean, he's – like, way up in everybody's face. Mm-hmm. And he, I, he's just, like, you know, a dirty old man. Um, <laughs> why is Shaggy Man holding a magnifying glass? I, that I don't know. <laughs> I cannot figure that one out to save my life. Yeah, I don't get that. Um, Sarge Steele is holding a hat in his hand, in his fist. Well, he's, and as I, he's, as I learned from reading this issue, that's not possible. <laughs> Because that hand doesn't open. Oh, well. <laughs> it's just a big metal fist. <laughs> oh, well, I guess they didn't know that. Whoever designed this cover didn't know that about Sarge Steel. Yeah. I would say the only, like, there's two misses on this cover. Overall, I'm sorry, I should say I do like the cover. Shadowlass is kind of a standout thing on the cover, the way she's kind of sexily, like, floating it, you know, across the, the cover. But there, there's sort of one, two misses, I would say. They missed an opportunity to do something with Shade, Shadow Thief, and Shadow Last together. Mm. That could have been something. And then there's no Secret Six. Which, no, you're right. Which immediately, I, first of all, I was like, oh, well, it's a group. They don't always put groups on here. Well, that's not true. If the groups have individual entries, they don't get listed. Right, but if but a they group, don't. Like, yeah. like, here's the Sea Devils. They're here. But there's no Secret Six. Huh. Jeez, I never And they're smack dab these. in the middle of the book, so I don't see why, you know, they were, like, hmm. forgotten. Oh, so, that's a shame. I know. Kind of ruins the whole thing. I'm just throwing it away now. Yeah, exactly. Let's move on to issue 21. That's right. (laughs) But it's a nice cover overall. Um, It is nice to see Cullens and Diodana together. Um, Giordano, I was trying to say. You know, the nice thing is Dick Giordano, of course, is excellent at drawing beautiful women, and he got a lot of opportunity here. I mean, Shakira sexually wrapped around Sergeant Rock's legs sort of there is is pretty hot. So, Oh, it's her and her cat form. I didn't notice that. Oh, she's transforming. Okay. Woo. All right. Well, let's open up the issue. Let's crack this puppy open, see what we got on the letters page. It starts off with a huge letter from the editor. And it's, it, the nice thing here is it, it basically is telling you that the series is doing so well and they've expanded so much, they're going to go from 24 to 26 issues. Because uh, up to this point, it was still supposed to be a 24-issue series. And it also mentions how they, they've been kind of talking all the while for about these yearbooks they were going to do, like, you know, an annual, essentially. Well, here they say, you know what, we're not going to do the yearbook. We've got too much to do. We're going to do updates. And those updates will be maybe two to three issues. Yeah, try five. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, of course, it talks about, you know, who, uh, who's who in Star Trek is coming up, as well as who's who in Legion, which was published in, you know, February 87, which we all love by Andy Helfer and John Byrne. That's one of my favorite books. I don't know if you, you enjoy it as much as I do. Yeah, uh, well, it's funny you mention that because I, uh, I was curious about that, about whatever happened to who's who in Superman. And oh. so I asked the editor, Robert Greenberger, 
what happened to that? And his response was, quote, Husu and Superman was conceived as one of a series of spinoffs, but once we saw the post-crisis upheaval that would result from the Burn reboot, it was shelved. You know, and that's kind of what I suspected, because once they rebooted Superman, no one had a history anymore. They, did, they didn't want to spend, I guess, a bunch of issues talking about Lois Lane knowing Kuklor and uh, <laughs> Nightwing, Nightwing and Flamebird when Byrne was doing, all, was doing his best to get rid of all that stuff. So I, I still am sorry because I, I would have liked to have seen just you know, yet another Who's Who series. But since they were trying so hard to reboot Superman, you could see why they would not want to spend so much time looking back on all the stuff well, they it- just got rid of. I, well, I got to think if it was Andy Helfer and John Byrne, it w- was never intended to be a look back. It would have been a, this is Superman now. But then they probably realized, well, we haven't really established enough. Well, that's true. That's true. But, yeah, I mean, they had to have, they would have had to have done something. I mean, they wouldn't have even started it if, 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 they, if they were just going to cover those, you know. Yeah, I guess it's possible they didn't realize how dramatic Byrne yeah. was going to redo it. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that, you know, it's kind of like you said, it's kind of neat to see it there. Uh, if you go through, um, let's see, there's a, there's a really, um, an, an, an asshole wrote in uh, complaining about the logos, saying, I mean, really, he's really, quote, it is obvious that very little time goes into creating logos for characters who do not already have them. You know what? Um, David E. Brady, you could go jump, all right? I mean, he's really rude. And they go on to explain that, no, that's not really true. What they actually do is not only do they take logos from covers of books, they also plumb the interiors of books looking for, like, when someone might go, you know, I am the, then the big logo shows up, Quake Master, you know, or whatever. They try and steal those logos even, which explains why some of them are a little weaker than others. And then they do talk about the fact that Todd Klein steps in sometimes, or sometimes the artists themselves draw the logos. Right, like Craig Hamilton did the logo for Ocean Master. Yep, and I imagine, um, you know, this first entry we're about to do, I think that logo is probably done by the artist as well. So yeah, and I, I don't, thank good, I don't think thank anyone. Good. I'm sorry, I don't think anyone could take a look at the series and say that very little work was put into it. Yeah, I you mean, can argue with the choices, but you can't possibly look at this and say, yeah, this was half-assed. I don't, right. I don't really think so. Nothing was phoned in in the series. Yeah. So. Uh, Brenda Pope listed as copy editor. Thank goodness she's still on, on board for this one. So, and with that, let's just get rolling. We've got a, you know, as Rob said, we're going to get off our lazy S's, but there are two R's to wrap up. So we're going to start off with drum roll, please. Rubber duck by Scott Shaw with an exclamation point. Love, 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 love this entry. Rubber duck is from, uh, Captain Carrot and the Zoo Crew, and I got—I just got to bask in that logo for a second, man. That is the coolest logo. It's Rubber Duck actually stretching his neck to spell out his own name. That's awesome. Clearly, Scott Shaw did that. That's not a Todd Klein thing. Yeah. So I'm—I'm I'm just going to read this first paragraph because I absolutely love it. Okay, Bird. His his secret identity is Bird Rentals. Okay, just. You'll, you'll get it in a second if you haven't already. Bird Rentals was a celebrity long before he became a superhero. Star of such movies as Smoke Eye and the Panda, Crashing Boars, and The Canine Bull Run. Co-star with such beauties as Sally Fieldmouse, Farrah Foxett, and Lonnie Antelope. He was an idol of millions, handsome, dashing cinema star. I laughed so hard when I read this thing. And it goes on to talk about his best friend is Donkey Louise. <laughs> 
This stuff's great. So he gets his power like all the other Zoo Crew guys from a, from a magic meteor that crashes in the hot tub he's in with Yankee Poodle, which is hilarious. <laughs> and it talks about how he spends a lot of his time cashing in on the Captain Carrot Zoo Crew, you know, mania. And, uh, and then there's a neat example, too, here where it talks about there's an, a famous actress named Farrah Foxette, you know, try and figure that one out, folks, has a crush on Rubber Duck but not on Burt Reynolds. And so he's sort of leading different issues with his life. So uh, foreground. Okay, so you've got Rubber Duck. He's stretching. He's doing some fun stuff. He's basically got, you know, power similar to Plastic Man. So he's, he's stretching his neck and his arm, and they're in some kind of fun shapes. And his arm almost functions as pa- panel borders. And you get three essential panel borders where you've got the zoo crew in action and he's saving pig iron. You've got Frogzilla stretching around. And then you've got a picture of him as a, the actor. And it says, coming soon, quack to the future. <laughs> I love this so much. I imagine that Roy Thomas had a whole legal pad full of these. Oh, probably. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You mean you mean Joe? You mean puns, right? Yeah, Empire Strikes yeah. Quack. Uh, you know, just <laughs> a million, you know, whatever. <laughs> Oh, man. So I have never actually read a, a lot of issues of Captain Carrot. I've probably read maybe three or four and enjoyed them. But it's stuff like this that just makes me want to read all of them. I mean, Scott Shaw, I, I've, I say this every time he shows up, but he really knows how to draw a who's who entry. Yes. I mean, the Serpent is great. The, the foreground is great. The logo, the line work, just he's a pro. Yeah, he crims a lot in, but it doesn't look crowded or anything. But he really makes these – he gives these characters the best possible presentation, I think, to the to a potential new audience, which is people reading, quote-unquote, serious superhero comics. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad they gave Rubber Duck the chance here because, um, you know, Captain Carrot had been over for a while. The Oz Wonderland War was now, at this point, over for six months. So, I mean, they didn't really owe anything to Captain Carrot at this point, but they went ahead and decided to finish the set and keep him in, and I'm glad they did. Yeah, they didn't skimp on the every, – every member of the team got a full page except for, I think, uh, the new one, the Little little Cheese. L- little Cheese? Well, but he's the, t- he's the small guy. Because he's the little guy. But, I mean, yeah, they, they gave Captain Carrot its, its due. Yep. All right, moving on. We've got uh, Reander. Wait, do we have a pronunciation gloss? No, we do not. Be- Oh, man. Okay. I'm going to assume it's Reander. It's somebody has got an apostrophe in his name, so you never know. Uh, by Sean McManus. Uh, this character is uh, part of the Omega Men and is the brother to Starfire and Blackfire, which tells you immediately how much I don't give a crap about this character, combining those two aspects of Omega Men and Starfire. <laughs> I should have mentioned, by the way, this is, our, this is a half-page entry. Um, very quickly, you know, like his sisters, uh, you know, Star... Uh, Starfire and Blackfire, he has energy powers, but in his case, instead of shooting blasts, his hands turn white hot. Um, you, know, you think about it, if you grow up and your older sisters are Starfire and Blackfire, you know, superheroes and despots and all that, I mean, that's got to really screw you up, you know, in, in your childhood. Like, you, I, just, I think he'd be in an awkward place. And he looks like a himbo. He really does. Yeah, I mean, we think about how many female superhero characters wear scanty costumes. Well, I mean, this is beefcake for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's wearing a Speedo, basically, and and a necklace and bracers. I mean, he's totally, you know, as as Rob said, you know, beefcaking it. And again, being that it's Omega Men and Starfire, I really don't have anything else to say. Yeah, this I always found him to be one of the duller Omega Men and let that sink in for a minute. So, uh, (laughs) but the artwork is quite nice. I mean, he, he, he he deserved no more than a half page. Absolutely. So appropriate here. 
There you go. Uh, the image, by the way, it's him in the foreground with his arms crossed in the background, a nice shot of his face, uh, profile, and then he's he's punching uh, one of those guards from the Omega Man comic. Gordinians or something like that. Yeah, and they've got the little glowing, igu, bouncing energy dude with him. Yes. I don't remember. Oh, Elu? Was Elu, Elu, I think. Okay. Uh, next up, uh, the other half of the, of the half-page entry is Sabic. Yes, that's right. The Star Wars uh, poker game has its own half-page entry. It's all about Han Solo winning the Falcon from Lando. Um, no, it is the Villain of Captain Marvel Jr., drawn by Kurt Schaffenberger, which is appropriate given uh, he drew the 70s adventures, am I right, with, uh, yes. of, the, of Shazam? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I like my favorite thing about Savick, um, well, I, I'll tell you a little about the character first. First of all, he's like a bald dude in a green, uh, not quite a muumuu, but like a cloak that with the hood down kind of thing. And he's got Murphy Anderson pointy boots. He is really kind of an uninspiring character. The art is fine. I mean, Schaffenberger did a nice job with what he was given, but it's really kind of a boring dude. So little snivelly bald guy with I th- looks like razor-sharp teeth probably. I'm not entirely sure about that. And he, like Shazam, had the ability to transform. He had an acronym, he would say, which would be SAVIC. And it, which is, this, is, this to me was the most interesting part. I mean, it, it stands for stuff. S for Satan. Uh, a for any. B for Belial. B for Beelzebub. Uh, a for Asmodeus and C for Cretius. I don't know how to say that. So I think that I thought that was kind of cool. And uh, he helped the Nazis. I love the first sentence in here. It says Tim Carnes was a nobody who wanted to be somebody. Therefore, he began to dabble in black magic. <laughs> That's like a no-brainer, of course. Yeah. Anyway, so my absolute favorite thing in here is his base of operations. Yeah, this is great. Nether regions. So he just hangs out in somebody's pants all day. <laughs> Most guys, uh, when they're younger, their uh, base operations is their nether regions. <laughs> I think that's the perfect way to move on. <laughs> all right. Next entry, full page. Ooh, I, I don't know if I can say my favorite. One of my absolute favorites in this book. Um, one of my favorites in Who's Who. It's The Sandman. By Michael um, Bar, Bar, Bear? Michael Bear. I always, I always said Bar growing up, but I think it is Bear. Yeah, yeah, Bear. Oh, my God. This piece is gorgeous. The Sandman logo is so 1940s boss. Yeah, the forefront, you've got him in the green suit with the purple cloak and the blue and yellow gas mask and the hat. And he's holding up his gas gun. In the background, you've got this magenta serpent. You see Wesley. You see Dion. Uh, you see... Um, the masked uh, of, the, of the fair guy. You see them in their later superhero type costumes. You see him with Sandy, the golden boy. And then there's this very sexy picture of Dean Belmont at the, on the bottom. Man, this piece just rocks and rocks and rocks. By the way, if I, I, I guess I didn't say it. It's Sandman from the Justice Society of America, if you don't, if you don't know who I'm talking about. Uh, dude, I got a lot to talk about, but the, but the art, what do you say? I'm not a huge fan of this piece, to be honest with you. I'm really not. I love the logo. I just think the pose is kind of boring, and it's – I don't know. I guess I'm not that big a fan of Bear's artwork. So I love this character, and his costume is killer. It's like one of like, yeah. the best comic book superhero costumes ever. But uh, I don't know. These, this artwork is just kind of like, eh, it's okay for me. Um, I agree that the, the, the Diane pose is sexy, and it certainly – It is just Diane, isn't it? I keep saying Deanne, but it's Diane. It makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah. it, and it hits all the bases. You know, it's got him without the mask. It shows him with his other costume. So, I mean, it, it does everything it's supposed to do. I just, I don't know. There's just something. It, I, like, 
I hate to say, well, they should have gotten so-and-so because that's always an easy thing to say. But, like, I would have loved to have seen, like, remember how good a job Matt Wagner did on Dr. Midnight? Sure. I would have loved to have seen Dr. Uh, Matt Wagner do this. Well, but in this you know. case, Michael Bear was about to do Young right. All Stars. Right, right. So I mean, he's the ideal choice. By the way, I just I didn't notice before, but the logo looks great. But behind it, there's like a treatment of a, of a rectangle and a circle, which are just like neat little accents. Yeah, it's well designed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I said it's a, it is a you know well it's a well designed piece. I just I don't know. Uh, I absolutely love it. Rob's completely wrong. People don't even listen to him. Um, so what you get is you get his origin talks about how he. I mentioned it earlier when I was talking about my uh, in-stock trades thing. He he goes to the 1939 New York World's Fair, and, and he ends up going after the, this guy named the Phantom of the Fair. There's also the Crimson Avenger is there, and all this kind of swirls together to create, you know, Sandman takes the role of the Sandman. He meets Crimson Avenger. They fight the Phantom of the Fair. That's kind of his origin. Now, interestingly enough, I'm, I don't – and I, I did a little research. I didn't get very far – I don't know if Sandman's origin was ever really told back in, like, the 40s and whatnot. But this is clearly the origin that matches up with the issue of Secret Origins. Right. Which is just, like, a month or two away from this issue of Who's Who. Like, they're, they're clearly paired up because they're, they're both in sync there. Neat thing about the Sandman is the character, he always sort of straddled the world of superhero and pulp. And he was kind of the, of both, which is why Sandman Mystery Theater works so well, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, now I realized I cut you off earlier because you were saying all these nasty things about this entry, but I, I couldn't take it anymore. Um, it, it's really depressing when you read the article. Uh, Diane died. I was going to. Fairly... I'm sorry. I was going to ask about that because it says that that's why he changed his costume to the other. Yeah. Now I have to. I, I don't know, but I'm going to assume that that that's a retcon story because that, if for that to have taken place, that would have had to have been published in the 40s, and back then they didn't do stories like that. They didn't really do, like, characterization where it was like, oh, somebody died. So I'm ch-. They just changed costume sort of, you know, from one month to the next. They didn't, like, get into, like, their whys. That feels like something where Thomas did later on to explain why he changed costumes. That's a good question. You know, that's something Anthony Durso or Earth 2 Chris or someone or, or Cisco could jump in and help us with because I don't know either. Now, he did – there was a point, though, where his adventures was him and Diane for a while. And then he adopted Sandy the Golden Boy, which is the same time he changed the costume, roughly. And, you know, Diane may have stepped out of the strips at that point in favor of Sandy. And whether they killed her or not, I don't know. That's a good question. Certainly in post, you know, post-crisis, Diane didn't die. Um, in fact, she's around, you know, in, in, in the future. So she did not die in the old days in post-crisis. And I'm glad you mentioned his new costume because this this is the only time I think I've ever seen in the personal data a first appearance of a costume. I was going to say that too. I don't think they did that for any for anybody yeah. else. Yeah, kind of strange. I mean, it, I guess it's a pretty delineating point in his origin. So. They didn't do it for Adam when he changed his costume. Yeah, even though they show it, they show it in the picture. So. Good point. Speaking of the picture here, you know, as we said, Michael Bear drew this, but why is there? Oh, that says Bear. I thought it said BMR. Never mind. Bear signed it. I'm sorry. I'm a doof. Uh, again, we get Sandy the Golden Boy. You get the last paragraph here, and I'm, I'm just going to read a bit of this here. Uh, recently, the Sandman Sandy and the rest of the Justice Society went to the dimension of Asgard in order to prevent the destruction of the universe. There, Sandman Sandy and the other JSA members merged with many of the Norse gods in order to battle the gods' greatest enemies. Caught in a time loop, 
The Sandman, Sandy, and the JSA will apparently battle these menaces for the rest of eternity, thereby preventing the universe's destruction. Um, that paragraph will be repeated in every JSA-related character from this point forward, with minor changes to the character's name. Uh, it is the greatest disservice ever done to the JSA. Uh, no, that's not true. One of the greatest disservices <laughs> ever done to the JSA, um, where they shunted them off. I understand why they did it, but they shunted the JSA off right after Crisis to get them out of the way. But it was uh, years later they would undo that and realize how much you know how much bank there is in the JSA. Thankfully, uh, a couple things to know. I love the gas gun, and I love how it talks about he always left that note. And stuff like that. But the thing that stands out to me here is there is no mention of Wesley Dodds having nightmares, which drove him to become Sandman. Which mm. I thought had been an integral, uh, integral, integral piece of the Sandman origin for a long, long time. Which like they, re- I, they reused in uh, Kingdom Come, and a nice little yeah. callback. Yeah. And, and they, they, I mean, why it's not here, I'm not sure. If someone can tell me, no, it never appeared before 1986, then so be it. But I seem to remember it always being part of the character. So, like, I don't think it was a retcon because you now Neil Gaiman uses it with Morpheus because, you know, uh, Wesley Dodd sort of gets mentioned. Um, but I don't, I think the nightmares were already there. So I don't, I don't know what the deal is there. Hmm. So, and I'll, I'll explain this Neil Gaiman comments in just a minute if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, I figure you do, Rob. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, By the way, before we get off this, yes. before we get off Sandman, it just occurred to me as we were talking that I have a scan of those issues of Adventure Comics on my computer. So I'm looking through them right now, uh, and yeah. there, the, Diane does not die, and there is no mention why he changes his costume. So that story was clearly retconned later okay. on. Because it's just in 68, he has the gas mask, and then you look at 69 – and all of a sudden, he's got the Sandy, and he's got a different costume, and there's no explanation for any of that. By the way, if you're only familiar with Wesley Dodds, we're spending a lot of time on this character, I'm sorry, but he deserves it. If you're only familiar with Wesley Dodds from the Sandman Mystery Theater, you really got to check this entry out. It will be on the Tumblr, because it's similar to the Sandman Mystery Theater costume, but instead of being in all browns and tans, seriously, it's purple and green, like the most garish colors, and it rocks. For that, I actually have the JSA action figure from DC Direct of him in this <laughs> costume. The first time they produced it, it was a variant for the same Mystery Theater version, and it's just gorgeous. Yeah. It is glorious. So, all right, we have to move on. Now, um, I will say one more thing about this guy. I know I just said we're going to move on. Good but... Lord, Shag. No, no, no. It, it's the segue. When Sandman was being drawn in action, in, in, I'm sorry, Adventure Comics in it's either 1941 or 1942, an artist team took over drawing his adventures. Do you know who that, that artistic team was? Simon and Kirby. Simon and Kirby. So Simon and Kirby drew the Golden Age Sandman. Let's flip the page to the next entry of The Sandman by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Huh. I didn't realize until doing my research for this episode that Kirby worked on both incarnations of The Sandman. Yes. I didn't know that. So, um... Yes, this incarnation was created by Jack Kirby. I don't know that Joe Simon actually was involved in this no, version. No, they weren't. They weren't. A t- they weren't a team anymore long okay. before this. So. Oh, you know, and this doesn't even say Joe Simon. No, this is Joe, Joe Sinan. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, 
the the gist of this character, he's very much a superhero san, uh, character. This is the 1970s. He's a guy who has uh, has discovered a dream dimension where he can see people's dreams, and he has this thing called the Dream Monitor where he can actually see people's dreams and go into them. He gets contacted because the president of the United States cannot wake up, and they need him to go into his dreams. And that you know what? Screw it. Forget it. Guys, this is the plot of Dreamscape with Dennis Quaid. Go watch that movie, and so I don't have to explain it, okay? The gist of it is he goes into this president's dreams, and uh, he gets stuck in there. And they send him a bunch of equipment, and so he stays in the dream dimension and comes in and out of the dream dimension to Earth and stuff and then fights nightmares and nightmarish monsters that haunt people. He even recruits a couple of nightmare creatures named Brute and Glob to help him out. So I've never actually read any of these adventures. Have you? I've read a couple. Uh, okay. And they are, to me, very uh, typical of uh, Kirby in the 70s, which is friggin' weird. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like OMAC and Commandian. And a lot of it just it just left me on the side of the road because I was like, what the hell is he talking about? The pose in this is, in the listing is strange because it looks like he's trying to hide that he has something in his left hand he doesn't want you to see. Yeah. He's like, oh, I don't have penthouse. You know, I mean, it's like a very strange pose. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love the costume. Very dynamic. Very, yes. very, and 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 then the art itself is really nice. But this this character just always sort of left me a little like I don't I don't I can't make heads or tails of this. <laughs> I really well, can't. He's got a yellow bodysuit with like red trunks and red, very standard sort of superhero design. Yellow bodysuit, red trunks, red gloves, red boots, red cape, red cowl. You know, and a, and a big hourglass on his chest. And his gimmick is he like he throws sand at people. He can go. He has a, a you know he's got a hypnotic whistle. You know, just different sort of things like that. Um, Rob described the foreground, the background, the serpent. You've got him battling a bunch of nightmare creatures. You've got him going into someone's dream to protect them from some monsters, like a woman. And then you see him sort of in his headquarters with uh, he's got brute and glob who keep who are his nightmare. Minions, he keeps them in jars, though, which is pretty cruel. And they're labeled, in case he gets confused. And you see him without his mask on. You also see the young boy named Jed Paulson, who he recruited to help him, which is pretty indistinguishable from Sandy the Golden Boy. Um, and in fact, I'll bring this up now, but the Sandman, which came out in the 70s, and Sandman the Golden Boy, who came out in the 40s, both done by Jack Kirby, have very similar costumes. Yep. Colors and designs, and I don't know if that was intentional or not. Like, I wonder if originally he intended this character to be, you know, uh, Sandy the Golden Boy grown up, and maybe he had to change direction for some reason. I don't know. But a um, couple things to mention here. This character appeared in his series, and was it the DC implosion that got him, or he just got canceled in general? Uh, no, I think he was canceled long before that. Okay. Well, Infinity Inc. picked up the story thread, and Hector Hall became the new Sandman. Right. And then shortly after that, it'd be, or not shortly, but then he went on to become Dr. Fate. Apparently he was everyone's costume at some point. So, um, Now, I wanted to mention Neil Gaiman, because if you've read Neil Gaiman's Sandman about Morpheus, uh, and if you hadn't, shame on you. You really should. It's sort of like required reading to read comic books. But he picked up the threads of just about every Sandman's thing he could. For example, with Wesley Dodd's Nightmares, he said the cause of Wesley Dodd having the nightmares was that Morpheus was imprisoned. And it traveled through the dream world, and Wesley Dodd suffered because of uh, his imprisonment. And that's what gave Wesley the nightmares. With this version of Sandman, uh, the, the, the super heroic version of Sandman, you get the story of uh, gosh, it, it Hector Hall gets involved when he's Sandman, and it involves his girl, his girlfriend who was or wife that was Fury, 
And she gives birth to a child who goes on to be the new salmon. I mean, it's all threaded very cleverly. Um, Gaiman did a really nice job of doing using that to great effect. And, um, you know, you should read it if you haven't read it. All right. Yeah. Next up, Sandy the Golden Boy, again drawn by Jack Kirby and inked by uh, Greg Theakston. Uh Again, we mentioned, uh, you know, Kirby drew this stuff in the 1940s. In the foreground, you've got sort of a chimpanzee-looking young boy. Uh, in his red and yellow costume, and they, and they did a nice job of proportions. He is small. He doesn't fill the frame, so you really get the impression he is a young lad. And the serpent, I love the serpent. I really love the serpent. You see, like, a close-up of his face and kind of a cool, notched-out panel. You see him in Sandman knocking out some goons, and then you see him battling uh, some sort of monster. I don't know what that is. Some, no, me neither. Like, yeah. But it's, uh, I, I like the serpent. I'm not a huge fan of his face in the in the... In the foreground image, though, he does look sort of chimpanzee. I see what you're saying. Yeah, but other than that, the you know it's very Kirby sort of hands on hips, like I'm ready to go kind of action. So you know, pretty much a typical teen sidekick character. He's Diane's nephew. Um, Diane, I guess, supposedly dies in some retcon, and he goes to help Sandman. And unfortunately, the big scary thing is that some accident occurs with Sandman trying out some new equipment, which turns Sandy into a monster. <laughs> the craziest friggin' story. <laughs> turns him into a monster, and Sandman's like, oh no. So he quickly locks Sandy, the golden boy monster, up in a cage or a cylinder, whatever, and keeps him anesthetized for 30 years. Yeah. At no point does he ever go to any of his Justice Society pals and say, could you help me with this? Right. And you find out that Sandy pretty much normalized not too long after turning into the monster. So for 30 years, or let's say 29 years, he was in prison for no reason. Well, he was normalized, but he couldn't speak. Right. That's why Sandman didn't free him. He was trapped in that body, but he was normal. Yeah, it's it's the most ridiculous. It's it's a fun story, but it's completely and utterly, rid- utterly ridiculous because it makes Sandman look like a horrendously stupid person. Yeah, well, he left him in, you know, locked up for... 30 years. Poor Sandy's looking yeah. at you go crazy. So eventually he gets freed after 30 years by someone named the Shatterer. I don't even know who that is. And then um, eventually he is turned back to human. And uh, then you end the entry with the same exact time loop paragraph about Ragnarok. So now, interestingly enough, later on, this character goes on to become Sand of the Justice Society, who's even the team leader for a while. And I I think in the final incarnation of Jeff Johns' JSA, I think he became Sandman. Okay. Like, at one point, he was supposed to become Sandblast, but for some reason, they nixed that name. <laughs> Thank God. Well, I don't think it ever even saw publication. But anyway, he became Sand and then maybe even Sandman. So. Fun fun fact, he has a gun called a wire poon. Yes! I love that. <laughs> um, what... Like, the whole thing with the monster, was that – that was in JLA, It was right? in JLA, yes. It was part of the JLA-JSA team-up where they – he gets loose and you find out the whole backstory. It's Even as a kid, I was like, what? You know, like, Sandman, why don't you just ask somebody? Hey, Dr. Fate, you knew we were kind of, like, super powerful, right? Could you help me fix my sidekick who's been turned into a monster and I've had him trapped for 30 years with no food or no place to go to the bathroom? No, it's fine. I won't say anything. I, You know, we were busy. I didn't want to bring it up. <laughs> All right, moving on. Sarge Steele. You've got this drawing here by Dick Giordano. So you know there's going to be some gorgeous women in here. And boy, there are. There's three of them. Mm, Sexy. Sarge Steele. We don't know his real name. He's a government agent. He, you know, 
I've, I haven't read a lot about Sarge Steele, but he is your espionage, secret agent kind of dude. If you need your go-to espionage guy, you go to Sarge Steele. And apparently we don't know much of his origin prior to finding out about his hand where he, he had a, a – he pissed off some people and they gave him a sabotage grenade and it went off and blew his hand off. <laughs> and he went to go get a replacement hand and instead of getting like you know a prosthetic hand that opened and closed, he decided to go for um, the cane topper of old man Biff's cane from Back to the Future 2, which is just a closed fist made of metal. And he has it fused to his left arm, which is, by the way, why he couldn't hold a hat with that hand on the cover, which we were talking about. And uh, in post-crisis, he went on to be pretty involved with, like, I think, Checkmate and yeah. stuff like that. I love in this. If you look at the, if you don't know anything about Chart Steel, and you just look and at I, the, and I don't, right? And you just look at the listing. Yeah. You're like, oh, this looks like a pretty straightforward espionage spy character. You know, probably, yeah. you know, fairly serious. But then you read it, and it says Steel also faced such menaces as Mister Eyes, the Smiling Skull, the Lynx, the Black Lily, and Liza Monelli. Uh, I'm going to suggest that maybe if he was fighting a villain named Liza Monelli, that maybe some of the 60s Batman campiness creeped into those stories at some point. <laughs> I haven't read them, but I'm just going to guess that maybe by the fact that he took on a character called Liza Monelli. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, she was a villain for a while. <laughs> I love the shot where he's punching – or he's, he's karate chopping – with his closed fist, some dude's gun hand, you know, Nazi. Captain Nazi. Yeah, I love that. Because, like, you know that's got to hurt like hell. Yeah. <laughs> He's bang. Ah! Would have made a great action figure. They had the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. Oh, they my had gosh. Steel with the he, Kung Fu grip. He would have made an awesome G.I. Joe Or a superpowers figure, because with the superpower, like, metal hand chop action. Yeah, yep. That would have that rocked. Yeah. Absolutely. Missed opportunity. All right. Next up, Sargon the Sorcerer. Uh, interesting logo, um, sort of plainish, but the I, the word the sorcerer I kind of dig that font. I think it looks kind of neat. Anyway, art by Fred Fredericks and Dick Giordano. Really nice piece, actually. You've got him sort of like reaching out of the camera, like he's in a running pose. It's it's a little stiff, I guess, but yeah, I, I still like it. I, love oh, I like it a lot. Flowing, yeah. The turban, the serpent is to die for. That close up of his face with no the turban intended. glowing. What's that? No pun intended. Oh, then you see him dead. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, you see him using his powers to make a fire escape uh, to wrap up around these bad guys. Really gorgeous, gorgeous piece. Um, he has an extremely complex origin that's tied in with a lot of mysticism and stuff. But needless to say, his powers come from the Ruby of Life, which is in his turban, which is connected apparently to the Ring of Life, also used by Spectre and Kulak. Hmm, who knew? And uh, he died in the Swamp Thing not too long before this episode, this issue was published. One of the great ways to kill a character. I mean, uh, Alan Moore really knew how to kill off people. And uh, that, that issue features two amazing deaths. It does. I mean, How's really well done deaths. I mean, How's he, he die? Yeah. Huh? No, how does he die? Well, you see him right there. He's being immolated. Oh. Yeah. Uh, it's all of, the, uh, all of the DC magic characters are holding a seance yeah. to fight these demons uh, that are coming out of hell and you, they're versus uh, arcane and all these other things. And so anyway, it, there's it's Zatanna, Sargon, Constantine, Zatara. Um, who are the other ones? Oh, God, a couple other ones. A couple of the, all the magician probably characters. Probably Immortal Man and people like that. No, it wasn't Immortal Man, but it was guys that were specifically the magical. Dr. Fate, of course, is there. And... 
anyway, uh, the, they're trying to fight back these this evil that's coming out of the sort of portal, and occasionally the evil gets overwhelms one of them and just bursts them in the flames. And oh, wow. Sargon gets burst into flames, and he as they have to keep holding his hand even as his charred body falls over. Wow, it's great! It's it's amazing. Even though I've just spoiled it, if you haven't read it, <laughs> it is those are that is an amazing. And if, for a Doctor Fate fan, you will love it because Doctor Fate gets a one of the most badass scenes he ever had in his career. Yeah. And you told me about. Oh, that. they're right. The one with Abner Grezer, yeah. and Gast. Yeah, yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's great. It it is full of awesome moments. Now, Fred Fredericks did this art piece. I did a little research, and here's I could tell he never actually drew Sargon, hmm. but he was well known for drawing Mandrake, which okay. is kind of interesting. Hmm. You know, um, another magical character. So, <laughs> so either way, this this one's definitely in the win column, folks. Yeah. Love this entry. All right, up next. Saturn Girl. If it's Legion of Superheroes, you know Rob doesn't care. Um, this one is drawn by Kurt Swan and Carl Kiesel. Um, this particular entry, I don't have... Like, I don't hate it. There, there's so I can't remember which person... Oh, jeez. We've got so many Legion fans. I've actually lost track. Somebody was very, very upset by this entry. They say that this is actually worse than uh, Phantom Girl's treatment. In a previous issue, they say it's so disappointing. I, it might have been Ange, maybe. Oh, gosh, I don't know. And um, But it's got Center Girl in the front in her traditional pink and white costume. And she's then in the background, she's running with the Legion. And you see her close up her face. And you see her with her baby with Lightning Lad. It's certainly not a terrible piece. It's I mean, she's kind of pretty. And she's got the 70s flyback hair. But for being one of the three founders of the Legion, and... Uh, uh, it's just lacking, I guess is the way to put it. It's just a bit of a letdown. It should be more dynamic and more heroic, I think is what it, what it yeah, should have been. Yeah, it's just dull. It's just dull. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's just the, she's just standing there. It's just dull. I, Carl Kiesel does his best to kind of dress it up a little, but, I, you know. Uh. But at least the art's not bad. No, it's, it's not. not. It's like, Kurt Swan. Kurt Swan's art was never bad. I just thought it was right. dull, and this is, yeah. to me, one of those pieces. I'm just saying that you, look at, you don't look at it and go, yeah, it doesn't look anything like her. No, no. It, it looks yeah. like her. Yeah. So Saturn Girl, again, she's one of the three founders of the Legion. She's telepathic. She's married to Lightning Lad. They have two children, one of which is uh, Graham. The other is Validus, dun, 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 the Legion foe from the Fearsome Five. And Darkseid is the one who stole the baby and sent him back in time and turned him into the evil monster Validus. How crazy is that? And I'm only a couple of issues away in my Legion read to get to that, so thanks for that spoiler. Um, so, again, Serpent's a little dull. Uh, the, the text does say that she's one of the best leaders ever. And uh, there's crazy bureaucracy in here. It talks about how when her and Saturn, her and Lightning Light got married, she, they had to leave the team. Under the terms of the original Legion Constitution. Right. It's so crazy. So I do like the piece in the Serpent of her running with Cosmic Boy, um, Sun Boy, and I think that's Colossal Boy, I believe. Maybe it's Star Boy. I don't know. The one with the, the like the things on his shoulders? Yeah. That's Colossal Boy. Yeah, but the star on his glove threw me off. So, <laughs> But anyway, um, it's a passable entry, though dull. And the, and the logo was nothing to write home about. That's true, but I imagine that was genuinely taken from something, right. probably. Clearly no thought was put in. Oh, bum, 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 bum. All right, up next, uh, Saturn Queen. 
one of the more confusing entries to me as an adult when I reread it and actually paid attention to what I was reading. Uh, art by Dan Jurgens and Bob Oxner. Uh, it's a nice piece. I mean, you've got Saturn Queen in the foreground, sort of at a – I don't know how you describe that. Like She's doing kid. the time warp. She is doing the time warp. Thank you. That just sums it right up. Or the twist. Uh, and you know, so you've got her in the foreground doing the time warp twist. In the background, you get a gorgeous shot of her face. You see her and uh, her her compatriots, Lightning Lord and Cosmic King, battling Superboy. You see her uh, in the background manipulating Chameleon Boy, and then you see the shuttle Tidarian leaving <laughs> Saturn, uh, or Titan, the moon of Saturn, and, and there you have it. The thing that, like, I knew she was part of the, you got that, didn't you? I Good. did. Uh, you knew she was part of the Legion of Supervillains. I knew that. But when I actually took the time to read this as an adult, I'm like, now wait a minute. It says here, she's part of the Legion of Supervillains. But not like the Legion of Supervillains. She's part of a different Legion of Supervillains. <laughs> one that consists of Lightning Lord, Cosmic King, and herself. And they are supposedly foes of the Legion from the future that have come back in time to mess with the Legion. So. You got all that? Right. It's a little trippy. I thought Lightning Lord was just like, you know, Lightning Lad's brother, right? I, I, I guess so. I have no idea. <laughs> maybe, it's a, maybe it's an older version. Oh yeah, I'm not. You're not the guy to ask, yeah, are you? Caroline. Maybe it's an older version of him. I'm not sure. But anyway, a little confusing. But um, you know, it's a decent piece. You know, Dan did a nice job. Oh, I the really design is great. I love the this, the background design of her her costume in the black turning into yeah. the star background. Beautifully designed. Yeah, the surprint is really where it's at with yeah, this piece. Yeah. So uh, nice. my favorite bit with these characters because I do yeah. have one. Is uh, they appear in the Leia Superman story by Alan Moore, and they basically you have you ever read those comics? You talking about the whatever happened yeah, to the man? Yeah, I've read it. It's been years. Okay, but they they show up. Uh, they come out of the time stream. They show up basically just to pile on Superman because mm-hmm. in, because in history it shows that this is where he died. And oh, this is this is probably Superman then rather than Superboy. Huh? In the Serpent. Well, in the Serpent, they show Superman. I said it was Superboy earlier. No, it probably is Superboy. Well, whatever happened to Clark Kent would have been published by this point. That's true. Okay, well, all right. Well, all right. Yeah, either way. All right, we're getting bogged down. Anyway, uh, they, they go back in time basically just to pile on Superman because they know he's going to die. Mm-hmm. But it's right at that moment that um, uh, Jimmy and Lana are killed and Superman completely loses his shit. And just blasts his heat vision because he goes – when he finds out that Lana is dead and he goes, you killed Lana? And he starts screaming and blasting his heat vision at the three of them. And they just turn tail and run because they're like, we didn't realize we were going to get hurt. Let's get out of here. And they just disappear. I love the idea of their villains who just show up just to pile on, just to kind of like kick dirt in somebody's face. But then the minute their their lives are at risk, they're like, let's get out of here. I just love that bit of characterization. Well, they're like, you know, super villain cow tippers who go to like screw around. But when the cows start getting uppity, they're like, get out of here. I love that. I love that Alan Moore threw that in. That it's like, they're all these powerful beings, but they're really just a bunch of chickens. (laughs) I thought that was great. uh, Cowardly lot. Cowardly. It was great. Uh, All right. Up next, Scalp Hunter by George Evans. This is a nice piece. I like this one. Mm -hmm. Um, Essentially what you've got is a, uh, a story of back in the 1840s, of a Native American tribe that uh, attacked a home and basically kidnapped a young white kid uh, named Brian Savage 
took him with him and raised him as an Indian. So he's essentially a white man wearing Indian's clothes throughout the, his series. He doesn't even know he's a white man until, he, as he's an adult, he gets recognized because of a birthmark and gets in some trouble. And eventually he comes to terms with the fact that he is a white man in Indian's garb and stays in Indian garb because that's who he feels, you know, his connection with. And he goes on to become a sort of a hero of the West, but um, he, he, you know, he, he teams up with Backlash, to, or sorry, Batlash, to save President Lincoln, which is kind of cool. Um, it's a, it's a, it looks like a really nice piece. Again, it's George Evans. He actually drew Scalp Hunter back in Weird Western Tales. In the foreground, you've got him there holding his knife, and he's got like a net wrapped around his arm. The Serpent. Oh, oh the Serpent. Serpent's so beautiful. I love that shot. Scalp Hunter in the background in the top left-hand corner. Mm-hmm. Just his face looks so nice. Then he's like jumping off a cliff attacking a cowboy. He's fighting a bear. And then it's him as a kid on a bucking bronco. So I – and I love the logo. I, I think this total entry is boss. Yeah, it's a nice piece. I've never read a single Scalp Hunter story. I, I couldn't tell you. I didn't even know he was a white guy until I read this listing. I was like, oh, oh okay. I didn't know that. The only cover I know, the one I'm familiar with, there's one of him arm wrestling Abe Lincoln, which is fantastic. <laughs> it's an awesome – they ran it in like a thousand DC ads. I want to read that story. I kind of do want to go back and read some of these, but I never knew anything about him before this. But the, the listing is really quite nice. You know, here's some interesting stuff. We, I, I talked last episode a lot about James Robinson's Starman series. Well, in James Robinson's Starman series, he establishes that one of the cops in Opal City is actually a reincarnation of Brian Savage. Wow, that's complex. I know. A little strange. Uh, Matt O'Dare is, is, is reincarnating Scalp Hunter. How very strange. Okay. Now, I, I thought about this, too. There's no mention in the text, and there's no th- nothing in the imagery, but his name is Scalp Hunter which implies he scalps people. And living where I am close to um, the Florida State Seminoles, there's a lot of talk about scalping all the time. And it's a nasty, bloody business, folks. I mean, it's not a pretty thing. No. And it's not very heroic either. So the very fact that he might actually scalp a villain is pretty gross and pretty nasty and pretty much makes him a terrible person. So the more you know. All right. Next up, The Scarecrow. By major Batman villain, art by Art Adams. Whoa! So good. I, I had to sit there and kind of scratch my head. I'm like, when did Art Adams draw Batman? You know, I looked it up. Turns out he drew a couple pages or so Batman in Batman 400. 4. Yeah. Yep. Exactly right. And so that's kind of where he fits in here. That and he just he's totally badass. Um, I, I shouldn't have to tell you a lot about Scarecrow. You should know about him. But as I read this entry, I found out I know less about him than I thought. You know, he's he's a he's a professor who is shunned by everybody because he's gawky and nerdy and all this stuff. And, but he's fascinated with the, the nature of fear. He's fascinated with um, – he also is desperate for money because he looks all sloppy. And so part of the reason he took on the identity of Scarecrow was not only to induce fear, but also he felt like the appearance of Scarecrow represented poverty quite well, which is what he felt like he was, he, he was poor. I didn't realize the poverty angle to it, and maybe that's a retcon. I don't know, but I really like it. His gimmick, apparently, is he leaves straw behind at the scene of a crime. <laughs> oh, goodness. But it's, it's a very nicely written entry. It tells you, gives you everything you need to know about the character. The only thing I would say it doesn't do is it doesn't really give you a sense for how important this character is in the mythos of Batman. The art, though. Oh, the art. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Gorgeous. You've got Scarecrow, as you expect him to look, sort of the Super Friends version of Scarecrow. You know, he's got the big hood and the brown costume. He's got random ropes tied around him and stuff. And he looks all sort of weird jointed and everything. 
And in the background, you've got a great shot of Jonathan Crane's face, very pinched, thin face. You see him hanging Batman up like a scarecrow himself. You see him battling Robin with one of his skull fear transmitters. And uh, then you see a, a scarecrow itself. It's a really, really, really nice piece. I think Scarecrow wins the random first appearance award for this issue, and that his first appearance is World's Finest Comics number three. It's <laughs> just like, huh? Like, not not in an issue of Batman or Detective. I mean, I'm not that World's Finest wasn't a Batman book, but it just that just seems like a very strange place for him to first for an enduring Batman villain to have first appeared. But uh, nevertheless, he did. Yeah, this is a great listing. He was always one of my favorite Batman villains. I just think he had his hook is great. I liked how they did him in the movie. Um, I was very happy to, you know, before that movie came out, happy to hear that he was going to be one of the villains because I always thought he was one of the best of the Batman villains that had to that point been untapped in live action. And I thought they did him, I thought they did him well. Biggest crime ever was there was no Batman after Batman and Robin with Howard Stern as the Scarecrow. We got ripped off. <laughs> he does look like Howard Stern in this, sir, Prince. Oh, really does. who cares? That would have been so horrible. Um, just some random thoughts about it. I mean, you know, the whole Ebenezer... Not Ebenezer. Um, who's the guy from Hordless Horseman? Crane. Ichabod uh, Crane. Ichabod Crane. Uh, I mean, you know, the name, Jonathan Crane's a little on the nose, but who cares? It works. It's fun. I love, the, as I said, the fear and poverty combined. Whenever I think of Scarecrow, I hear the Super Friends voice in my head from yeah. Challenge of the Super <laughs> yeah. Friends. That is the Scarecrow I hear. Yeah. And I'm so glad that at this point he still looked like that. So, mm. so good. So good. All right. And because Frank threatened me, this will go up in the Tumblr, because it's Art Adams. So. <laughs> Next up, The Scavenger. This, uh, this guy fights some dude who talks to fish, I think. Yes, he does. Uh, art by Ron Friends and Bob Smith. Very simple artwork, but really well done. I mean, really nice. Very effective. You get a great close-up of his face, and, and we don't know who he is, so he's still in his mask, but we still get the close-up of the face. I love that. It looks great, because he's, he's basically... Flying, you know, swimming around in a, in a diving suit, but he's got these scalloped little teeth all around his porthole face mask, which I absolutely love. Uh, first appearance, Aquaman number 37. In, and there's no mention of it in here, but in, in that episode, he threatens to rot the sea. And I still pose the question, how, do you, how does one rot the sea, and what does that mean? It just really bothers me. So, Then in here, it talks about the fact that, unlike other supervillains who explain their whole plan... He didn't wait around. He just took action. He just went for it rather than sat around and told everyone his plans, which I think is an awesome trait for a supervillain. It's great. And I really, by the way, his suit, while it looks cool here, I do like his new 52 version, which is like a big diving suit, which is nice. Yeah, well, they, they gave him a new one in the, in the um, J.M. DeMatteo story. He's got a new one. He's got the purple and yellow outfit with the fin on it and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Is that what similar to the new 52 outfit? Yes. Okay. Now, Got a little story about this one. Um, just real quick, in the foreground, you've got him sort of like in an action-y, punchy-type pose. And then in the background, you've got him pulling a gun on Aquaman while he's holding, uh, I guess, Aqualad, probably. you got Aquaman and Aqualad close-up face. So you see his scorpion ship in the bottom. It's a really well-done piece. And it just so happens that one of my very dear friends owns this original artwork. That's something we don't get to talk about very often on the show is the original artwork for Who's Who. And I asked him about it. He sent me some scans, which we'll put up in the Tumblr. It's a really nice piece. It's really cool because check this out. Apparently, um, and it makes sense what you think about it, but almost every piece of art for Who's Who uh, is done on two sheets of paper. 
you get the background image, which is the serpent, and you get the foreground image, and they're done on different sheets of paper, and that's because the serpent, which is also called color hold, is done in a single color, so it's got to get knocked out that way. So what you get is uh, the main image, the one in the forefront, is done on vellum. Right. Well, the background image is done on usual art paper, artboard paper. Or, I'm sorry, artboard. And um, that's how they get the effect, again, of the, the single color and the, and the full color. And... He says, so when you go to buy Who's Who artwork, it's always in two pieces, and it's a little hard because the vellum paper is really easy to wrinkle. So there's a lot of risk of it being damaged, which is kind of cool. And the artwork is stamped on the back, he says, which is how they showed approval uh, to print back then. So pretty interesting story. And uh, I'm very excited for it, but I, I, I think he's the first person I know that owns a piece of original art from this series. Yeah, they, they don't come up much. I mean, if I ever saw one at a Comic-Con, I mean, I'm not a big art collector, but I'd be really tempted to get one if I could afford it, because, I mean, that's just such a unique piece to own. Yeah, who's who? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you really do not see a lot of who's who pages come up, because of the vellum bar. The vellum is easily crinkled, so I imagine yeah. a lot of the stuff does not survive. You could probably get the Richard Dragon one cheap. Yeah, probably. Um, so, thank you. Uh, to, oh, by the way, my friend, uh, some of you guys know who he is, Ravenface. Uh, also known as Simon, uh, is the person who owns this thing. One of my childhood friends who uh, I remain buddies with to this day. So, um, Last time I mentioned him on the show, a bunch of people were like, Ravenface? It can't be the same Ravenface. Really, how many Ravenfaces are there, guys? Let's be real. <laughs> uh, all right, next up, Star Labs. It is an entry dedicated to a building. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then you get, you know, instead of faces, you get four faces, Dr. Jeanette Clyburn, uh, Dr. Murray Takamoto, Odd first name for someone in Japan, uh, Dr. Sarah Charles and Dr. Albert Michaels. Honestly, I think Star Labs was a brilliant addition to the DC Universe. It's a very Marvel idea, you know, a science lab where things are always going wrong, stuff like that, corporation kind of thing. Seems like a very Marvel idea to me, but it works really, really well. A lot of the entry is fate focused on this guy, Dr. Albert Michaels, who does a bunch of bad things. He's responsible for the creation of the second Metallo. He eventually becomes the Atomic Skull himself. So, uh, oh, I'm sorry. The art, by the way, is by Ross Andrew and Ricardo um, Villagran. So the art's nice. I mean, it's a building. Uh, but I always love the shape of the Star Labs building. Always, you know, sort of at an angle. It's like an odd shape. Can I tell you, I always thought growing up that this was the doofiest design for a building. I was like, why would you build a building like this? It's based on a real building. Uh, looks like this, and we—it's in New York, because we went there for a trip for the Cupid School for a, a field trip, and I remember a bunch of us walked by this building. We're like, "It's friggin' Star Labs." <laughs> now I tried to look it up online, but I could not find it. I could not find, no matter what Google search I did, what what the building is. But it's but it, it's a real building that really exists in New York that they base this off of. You know, it's always reminded me of this building in Jacksonville, Florida. And I don't know what it's called now. It used to be the MetLife building. Then I think it became the Independent Life building. It's, it's always some sort of insurance company or whatever. But it looks a lot like that building to me in Jacksonville. So that's kind of what I always think of when I think of this thing. Um, you know, uh, I was going to mention one more thing here. Oh, it's just funny. Someone here, like, they don't have a lot of space for describing stuff. And also they don't really want to show all the details. They don't want to give away all their details and leave themselves, they want to leave themselves sort of open to do whatever they want with Star Lab stories. So I like here it says, um, it would be impossible in this brief space to tell all the fantastic <laughs> discoveries made by Star. Just trust. Well, right, exactly. Blah, 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 blah. 
And by the way, STAR is an acronym, Scientific and Technological Advanced Research. <laughs> of course. Look at that. You know? The more you know. All right, next up, Sea Devils by Russ Heath, as we talked about in the earlier uh, In Stock Trades ad. Gorgeous piece. It's them all swimming underwater, holding spear guns. Um, you got Serpent is shark swimming around them, which is done effectively in blue. You got close-ups of their face of, um, is that Bill Bailey or Biff Bailey? I can't tell. Biff. Biff Bailey, Dane Dorrance, uh, Judy Walton, and Nikki Walton. It's now, just totally awesome. Absolutely gorgeous piece. You really get a sense for, like, it's sort of the final frontier underwater is kind of what you get the feeling for when you read this. Great idea for the 1960s. Um, we talked about Aquaman. You know, the it is ridiculous that Aquaman and the Sea Devils never met. No, not in the, in the 60s. They never crossed They didn't cross paths until much later, which is... I think it was Crisis when they first met, wasn't it? I think it was before that. I think they... Uh, maybe. I could be wrong. But, I mean, and then later on, they met in... Uh, well, they met the new Aquaman and the son of an, um, sort of Atlantis. But, yeah, how they never met in the 60s. That's crazy. I mean, it's ludicrous. I, had, I went and did the research on it. And sure enough, Sea Devils it was a 35-issue series, okay? Issues 4 through 35 were all published at the same time Aquaman was being published. So you got 31 issues every other month being published, and no one at any point said, you know, we got two water guys, two water groups. Should maybe something happen there? DC would pair them up in ads, too, when they did house ads. Oh, did they? They would put Aquaman and Sea Devil books together. So they clearly knew, like, this is similar, and yet never teamed them up. Now, to be fair, you know, the world is 75% water, so you're more likely to bump into, you know, Superman and Red Star from the Soviet Union are more likely to bump into each other probably than Aquaman and the Sea Devils because of the sheer size. But still, come on, how many underwater books do you have? So, it's a weird missed opportunity, but I like how this group was sort of thrown together. They're all diving for different reasons and end up coming together. Um... I just I sit here and I imagine such great adventures with this. I'm I'm a little scared to read the showcase for fear I might be disappointed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, the Secret Six. This is a fun one by Jack Sparling. You know, I did not get a chance to research this. Did Jack draw their original? I adventures? believe he did. I, I read those comics many many years ago as back issues, and they're fun. They're it's a they were one of DC's tryout series in the late '60s, where they were just oh. giving they were giving everything its own book. For a minute, just to try it, and it was yeah. it was it, it was a fun book, and then it was canceled before it ever really got a chance to take off. But uh, but yeah, I believe Jack Sparling did the artwork for that series. Okay, and what you've got is a shot of the team together, and uh, like King Savage has a girl on each arm, <laughs> which is funny, uh, and it's got uh, you know, well it doesn't really matter what their names are, but the what, what they are though they each have different sort of talents. There's a one's a boxer. Our former boxer, one's a former uh, physician, one's a magician, one's a French film star, one's a, a vet slash pilot, or like a veteran slash pilot slash stuntman slash actor, and the other one's a fashion model slash actress slash gutter trash. Um, well, I mean, it says she was like not, she was not doing well when they found her. Let's put it that way. All right, so. gutter trash, jeez. Well, she became a streetwalker in London, and it talks about pimps. So, right? Okay. Anyway, um, the text is interesting because it's very condensed. Like, if you read it, it's almost like in just bullet points, practically telling you, like, former Gold Gloves champ, Vietnam vet, heavyweight contender under the name Tiger Force, ordered to take a dive, 
refused and testified. You know, it's like not, they're not even putting stuff in sentences because they've got to cram it all in. So the picture, as I was saying, they're all kind of hanging out. Uh, I didn't finish saying the physicist is like doing some sort of scientific formula. The um, the the magician is looking all crazy goofy with his face. The, the boxer's been posing with his arm. The two girls are looking sexy. It's just, it's funny. Now, the, the, the big key to this team, when they were appeared in 1968 in their own series for seven issues, the big question was, you know, all of them were working for Secret Six because they were being blackmailed to, essentially. Like, they were going on these missions, and if they ever tried to quit, their mysterious unknown leader named Mockingbird would... Uh, reveal whatever the blackmail was on them and sort of ruin their chances of any future career or life or whatever. And the thing you find out was, dun 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 dun, the mockingbird person was somebody on the team. So somebody on the team was manipulating every, all of them. And uh, that's a pretty cool t- story twist. And I bet in 1968 it was really interesting. It was very innovative, and, and if you go and look, maybe we'll even put this on the Tumblr, the cover to Secret Six number one is one of the all-time great comic book covers. Really, it's very unusual. It's it's basically like three sections. Three. It's not three separate panels. It's all one big image, but it's sort of three pieces. Uh, and uh, it's like a building. It's like a car smashing through a, a building, and you've got the logo. It's a very unusual cover. Really stands out. I, I can see DC was really kind of taking a risk commercially with it, and of course it didn't work because it can't. I think they canceled that as of like number six or seven, but seven. The seven, but boy, that 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 first issue cover is killer. Hmm. Now they did go on in later years to reveal who the Mockingbird was amongst the six who was manipulating everyone, but that was done by a different creative team. So I sort of dismiss it and say, well, you know, that was that writer's interpretation. That's my take on that. So there you have it. Yeah. Moving on, next one. <laughs> wow, this is your kapow moment right here. It's the center section of the issue. Opens two-page spread. Gazillion characters, the secret society of supervillains. And just to be a little gross here, for whatever reason, on my copy of this comic, this page keeps sticking together. It's like sticky pages. And you know what? For being such a badass superhero team, I could see it being like a wow sort of thing. I just grossed Wow. Wow. Yeah, I know. I went there. So, Secret Society of Supervillains, art by Alex Saviak and Mike DiCarlo, Roll Call, Angleman, Bizarro, Blockbuster, Brainwave, Captain Boomerang, Captain Cole, Captain Stingery, Cheetah, Kronos, Copperhead, Felix Faust, Floronic Man, Funky Flashman, Grodd, Hijack, Killer Frost, Killer Moth, Lex Luthor, Manhunter, Matter Master, Mirror Master, Mist, Monocle, Poison Ivy, Psycho Pirate, Quake Master, yeah, Quake Master, Ragdoll, Reverse Flash, Shadow Thief, Sinestro, Silver Ghost, Signal Man, Star Sapphire, Trickster, Ultra Humanite, and Wizard. Oh my gosh. Now the art, Savvy, we've always said, is sort of like really great as sort of like a DC house style. This is, to me, really emulating uh, of Kirby. It feels like a Kirby piece, even though it's not by Kirby. Is that fair to say? Hmm. Uh, I, I think pose-wise, I could see what you're talking about. I don't, I don't see it in the look, but I think the poses, I could, I could see Kirby doing these kinds of poses. Yeah, like almost like Kirby did the layout or something, maybe mm-hmm. or something. That's what it feels like. Um, I actually recently read the first half of the Secret Society of Supervillains comic book. It, uh, it had its own series for like 16 issues or something like that, and I read the first half in the trade. 
It is a bizarre little series. It I mean, is. it's sort of it's sort of like a vehicle, really, for Captain Cold and and Manhunter. But it's um, it feels like every couple issues they change the complete direction of the series, though. You know, it does. It's it's do, you don't feel like a consistent flow through the series. Uh, I mean, it's, it wasn't bad. I enjoyed it. It just I guess I was expecting it to be really, really, really amazing. You know, and it was like, oh, it was okay. Yeah, not the best. I thought I'm thinking about picking up volume two, um, which might be more fun. I don't know. And, and as a kid, I really didn't know who a lot of these villains all were. And it's fun as an adult, you know, having read all these who's who's now going through here. Like, I feel like I know these characters intimately now. So, in fact, sitting here looking at all these characters and knowing exactly who they are now because of all the who's who entries makes me wonder if I go back and read Crisis once we finish who's who, how much more. Will I get out of Crisis now that I know every obscure character in the DC Universe that I did on all the previous readings? I now have a greater appreciation of Captain Stingray than I did before. Exactly. You know, and the losers. I know more about them now. So um, so what do you think of this piece? Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, I've said before, I think Alex Saviak is someone who is subjected to, at times, indifferent inking, if not always from bad inking. And not that Mike DiCarlo is a bad inker. I just don't think this combination is particularly that great. It's hard to do a lot with this piece. There's just so many figures. I mean, there's just so much he's got to cram in. It looks absurd to have a team featuring all these guys. You just can't figure how do any of these guys get along. And I sort of like how, I don't know whether this was a commentary by Alex Saviak or merely just the natural selection, that all the real loser characters are stuck in the back. Yeah. Captain Stingray, Silver Ghost, Quake Master, Hijack. They're shoved in the back, while in the front you've got Cup and Cold and Luthor and Bizarro and Poison Ivy, kind of the bigger ticket ones. And it's just like that's just sort of a funny idea that the the guys in the you know they're they're, they're bringing up the rear. They're like, oh yeah, in, in case any of us get knocked out by the Justice League, let's let Silver Ghost handle it. You know, like okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But the, I remember buying this book as a kid, and I did enjoy. It, but you said it's a strange book because I think. Even as long, even as late as then, like in the '77, the Comics Code said that you could not have villains getting away with things. Uh. Like they couldn't be there, so they had to be apprehended in some way or defeated in some way. So that's what could eventually doomed the, the Joker book that they did in the '70s as well, uh, because you couldn't let him get away with these things. Necessi- it was kind of a weird. I, I don't know how hard and fast that rule was by 1977. But it, it reads like a big miniseries, like a, like a yeah. four to fifteen issue miniseries. So. <laughs> well, I still love this two page spread, and uh, you know what I didn't mention is it's got the whole crowd, but you get the little faces on the sides, right. like you get in the Justice League entries and stuff like that. So, absolutely love that. All right, next up, uh, Sensei, uh, art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, Praise be his name. name. Beautiful artwork, yep. really nice. It's got Sensei in the front kind of doing He's a really old guy, and he's doing some martial arts. In the background, you see uh, the ghost of, I think, is that Dead Man, maybe? Yes. Something? Uh, you see him talking to a bunch of troops, and then you see him battling Dead Man. Um, uh, this character is tied in with the Dead Man and Nanda Parbat and all that mysticism. And Raza Ghoul, so I really, really don't care. Okay, uh, he was he was a he's a member of the League of Assassins. Yeah, I wasn't too big on this either, but the artwork is so friggin' killer. I mean, 
Jose, I mean, he makes this, you know, really old guy look like he's ready to just knock your head off with his karate chops. I mean, yeah. the artwork is just what, what's what brings it. It really is. Yeah. It's just, ugh. other than that, I like the logo, though. <laughs> All right. Up next is Sensor Girl, art by Steve Lytle. This is sort of a double entry of, of sorts because it's really two characters, if you will, because it was revealed just shortly before this Who's Who entry that Sensor Girl is actually secretly... That's right, Princess Projectra. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, Princess Projectra was the the heir to the the throne of Orando, which is basically it's a planet in Legion world, but really it's just the Orlando misspelled. They forgot the L. And she's there, and she's ruling her world, and she's married to Karate Kid. And unfortunately, Karate Kid gets murdered by this dude named Nemesis Kid. So she turns around and executes Nemesis Kid like a boss. And the people of her world get really ticked off. And they force her to sort of, I guess, they basically put her in exile. They tell her she has to go back to Earth. And they tell her she has to hide her identity. So she's not Princess Projector anymore. She hides under this new identity of Sensor Girl. And she's using her illusion powers and stuff to make her seem like she has a different power set. She joins the Legion. There's a big question of who's Sensor Girl for a long time. Uh, Eagle-eyed readers of Who's Who would have noticed that Princess Projector didn't have an entry in a previous issue of Who's Who. So they may have sort of clued into that. She also has some really, like, really crazy sense powers, which lets her see, through, quote, see through the illusion of the world, where she can, uh, she has, like, super, she just knows stuff, because she has weird super senses. It's very strange. Yeah, anyway. man. Yeah, it's all BS, man. <laughs> uh, really great picture by Steve Lytle in the foreground. Uh, it is sort of like, you know, hands on hips pose, but I always liked the Sensor Girl costume. She looks kind of sexy there. In the background, you get her as Projectora and her as a Sensor Girl mask. You've got some nice design features mm-hmm. with the mask symbol in the back, which is really nice. You get her, you see her with her, her dead husband. You see Quizlet. I'm not sure why Quizlet's there, though. And then you see sort of like Sensor Girl holding up an image of herself as Projectora with two different Serpent colors, by the way. Fancy. So, yeah, yeah. Overall, it's a, it's a really nice piece. I like it. And it's interesting that the, that uh, DC took the time to give Sandman two different first appearances just on a costume, but yet Sensor Girl does not get a first appearance here. How fascinating. It lists her projector appearance, which is Adventure Comics 346, but it does not mention Legion of Superheroes Volume 3, number 14, which is the first appearance of Sensor Girl, which is the listing that we're looking at. Where the heck did you pull that out of your butt? <laughs> you just said. Why? That's crazy. You hate the Legion with the passion of a thousand burning suns. Doesn't mean I can't look things up on the Google. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nice entry. Nice entry for the Legion. And uh, and she's smoking hot. So, uh, Going next, Sergeant Rock. Yeah, baby. By a little-known artist named Joe Kubert. <laughs> It, this is awesome. I mean, Sergeant Rock's leaping into action, almost out of the, he's sort of out of the frame, coming at you, shooting his machine gun, holding on for you know, in the background, supporting himself, actually hanging off of his own logo of Sergeant Rock, which is like chiseled out of rock. The the serpent could not be larger. I mean, it's really well done, and use of shades and shadows, and you got a real close up of Rock's face. You've got him getting pimp, being pimp slapped by a Nazi. Um, I think it's Iron Wolf, I believe. Iron Major. Iron Major, thank you. And you see Easy Company coming up the hill behind him. Um, Great piece. Wow, 
so good. The only thing that's confused me is they don't use his classic logo. This is like a yeah. custom logo, this rock piece. But it's you sure not, it's not you sure it's not like a, an original logo or something? What do you mean an original logo? Well, I mean, by this point, Sergeant Rock had something like 300 appearances. Right, but he always had that so. one logo. I mean, it's basically oh, really? that okay. one classic logo. That's the only thing. I'm not even saying it's a minus. It just, it's just strange that they didn't use the logo that was emblazoned on his own comic for 20 years. That seems so sort of a strange thing. Now, this is a clear example of where Todd Klein did not do this logo, no, where, no. where uh, Kubert did the logo himself. Yeah. So, interesting reading Rock's history. I mean, he used to be a boxer. Didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And he signed up the day after Pearl Harbor, you know, and um, it's sort of like everything's very straightforward until you get to the bit where he mentions all his villains and it makes it sound like there's a little bit of superhero yeah. stuff going on here. <laughs> Iron Major, the wolf, the Nazi ghost. You know? <laughs> but uh, really solid entry. This one's going on the Tumblr. Love it. I love what it mentions. Rock and Easy saw almost continuous action throughout the war, fighting their way through France, Europe, Italy, uh, North Africa, Belgium, Holland, and parts of the <laughs> Pacific. Poughkeepsie. <laughs> they purposely didn't do that. <laughs> they purposely did not send the same guys to the, every right. part of the war. Guys that fought in the Pacific did not fight in Europe. But I guess Sergeant Rock and Easy Company were just too valuable to let go. So they just sent them everywhere. <laughs> well, again, after 300 issues, you know, you got to mix it up and keep yeah, the listeners I guess or so. the readers engaged. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> Love this one. This one's such a win. Yeah, it's a great such piece. a win. It's a great piece. Um, speaking of wins, uh, next up is <laughs> Seraphan of the Forever People by Jack Kirby and Gary Martin. Um, there's one thing that's pretty cool about this entry, I have to say. And the cool thing is that this is the second to the last Forever People entry we'll ever have to cover again. So that's what I'm excited about. Um Actually, the art's pretty nice. It's Kirby, you know, it's with Gary Martin. I love Gary Martin as an inker. You know, it's got Seraphan in the foreground, which is essentially a kid who just dresses up like a cowboy, for even though he's like a space dude or whatever. Anyway, he's zapping somebody in the background. He's with the forever people having to deal with, uh, it looks like Glorious Godfrey probably. And then, ladies oh, and gentlemen. my father. There's no beard. Oh, you're right. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. I think you're right. You're right. Yeah, sorry. And because um, Ben Boxer looks like he's ready for a fight, and then uh, he's holding his hat in his hand, folks. And you know why he's doing that? That's right, because the headband on his hat is a utility belt, and he's pulling off a capsule. Uh huh. <sighs> Can I just say next? I love the well. I love the powers of weapons. Seraphan is a sensitive, possessing limited <laughs> te- te- telepathic powers, so he could form a team. With, like, Pariah and uh, Jericho, and it's like the, gl- the Gloom Patrol or something. I mean, just and these really Counselor, sad Counselor guys. Deanna, Counselor Deanna Deanna Troy. Yes. <laughs> I feel something, Captain. Yeah, just, yeah. Like, a telepath who dresses up as a cowboy. There had to be another character t- that they could have given a half page to, right? Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> so, resounding. Next! All right. Seven Soldiers of Victory by Howard Bender and Dale Heroes who can't count. <laughs> so true. So very true. In every incarnation, they can't count. Um, I don't know why, why Howard Bender got this piece. I didn't get a chance to research that. But I'm really glad him and Del Barris did, because I like this piece a lot. The Serpent is used very effectively as an American flag. The Seven Soldiers of Victory is their classic logo, which is so boss. Um, it's great. You get the V in the flag or 
it's sideways square, whatever you want to say. Anyway, they've they've wedged all eight heads in here of Vigilante, Green Arrow, Star Spangled Kids, Shining Knight, Speedy, uh, Crimson Avenger, Wing, and Stripesy. And then uh, in the main image, uh, they're all coming at you with Shining Knight and his horse in the foreground. It's oh, really, really, really a nice, nice piece. I, for some reason, I don't know why I think this, but I feel like if, if Aquaman, if the Aquaman comic character from the 40s, if they had bothered to put him into a team book, they would have put him in this book. Yeah, this absolutely. Feels, this feels like the off-brand 40s DC heroes, while the while the J- JSA was the main guys. This feels like the off guy, you know, the, the, the side, the B guys. So I feel like well, you, Aquaman would have been part of this team. You know what it could be, and... Um, if you read Back Issue Magazine, which I know you do, uh, they often talk about in the old Golden Age type stuff how different sort of like f- companies within National Periodicals. Yeah, there was all American comics and national right. comics, yeah. And so clearly these were the ones that were in the same printing house. And I don't know if Aquaman belonged in that same printing house or not. Like I don't know where more yeah, fun I comics fell. But, I mean, that Green Arrow was in more fun comics. Oh, yeah, Green Arrow was in the same book, so, so it should be. But yeah. Doctor, so was Dr. Fate, who was in the JSA. So I don't know if it broke down like that. I want to say JSA was a combination of the printing houses, though. I think so. Like, purposefully so. Yeah. Um, either way, uh, yes, Aquaman would have a great addition, but he's not in here, so stop talking about him. All right? Jeez, wow. bogarting this thing for your own website. Uh, the inking especially jumps out at me. Uh, like, I love Green Arrow's face. He's just, he's got the slightest hint of snark, and so does Speedy. I don't know. It's, I really like it. Comes off great. I actually have very, 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 very little experience with this team. Like, other than maybe an issue or two of All-Star Squadron, and and maybe that issue of Justice League, which honestly I don't know that I've read even though I own it because I cannot remember anything about it. Um, I I know a lot about the team without ever reading about them. Like, their adventures are mystical and mythical to me. Well, most of their stories have never been reprinted. Because they, uh, they appeared as a team in leading comics, as it says here. First appearance of leading comics number one. And those have never been reprinted. So they're, it's hard to find, really. They were the basis of a, of a cool three-part story in JLA 100 through 102, where they yep. were brought back. Uh, that was really cool. But, uh, yeah, I mean, for the most part, you just can't find their stories because they're not, avail- they're not really available. Yep. So, interesting stuff. I look forward to reading... Um uh, Ciscoid's, uh who's this uh, entry on them to learn more about them probably. So, next up is The Shade, as in the Flashville in The Shade, by Carmen Infantino and Rick Magyar. I will say I like Rick's inking on this piece. Yep. That's probably the nicest thing I can say about the it's art. It's the most interesting pose Infantino gives any of the Flash villains, because he's yeah. not doing hands on hips. It's hands on cane. He's doing, he's, well, he's <laughs> about to break into a song, what it looks like, you know. Putting <laughs> on the red. So, I mean, it, it's, it's it, within the range of the poses Infantino gave the Flash films, which was very limited, this is the most interesting visually. You know, actually, I would say it's not as interesting as the other one, but it's different. Like, there's so many of the other pose, and only one of this pose. It, this becomes more interesting because it's un, unique. Right. Okay, so. yeah, that's fair. It's it's boring as hell. He, he's a guy who wears all black velvet. At least I assume it's velvet. Uh, he's got some shoulder pads to it. And he wears a black top hat and he's carrying a cane. I mean, it's really really dull. He's a villain it, for fo- he was a villain for fo- both flashes. Yes, he could have. He's an interesting character. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying he appears boring here. Uh, yes, he fought both flashes. Exactly right. And interestingly enough, at, at this point in his in, in history, his cane apparently contains his powers. 
And, uh, of course, he has shadow powers and he has control over, like, the dark zone and stuff like that. And um, that was kind of what he was. He was sort of like, you know, generic Flash Rogue number seven is sort of what he was. But then James Robinson James Robinson, came, right, right, right. Yeah, and turned the shade into this entity, if you will, that's just totally out there and uh, is really interesting. And I like one of the things that uh, Brad Meltzer did with the shade after that was they did this bit where – Green Arrow came back from the dead. And they said that when Superman died, the this heroes of the world sort of got their crap together. And every hero picked a buddy, if you will, to cover their tra- tracks and, tra- and cover their backs if they died. So when Green Arrow died, it was Shade's job to go sort of like sweep up the mess so people wouldn't figure out Green Arrow was Oliver Queen, take care of any business, and just get it to go away. And they, and they, you know, take care of any mess. Like when Clark Kent died, you know, there was questions about, oh, what about happened to Clark Kent? Well, if someone had been there to sort of explain everything without revealing the hero's identity, it would have helped. And so that was Shade's role for Green Arrow. And I always hmm. really dug that. And later on, you and I are going to have a conversation about that for you and I, by the way. So, <laughs> Okay. Anyway. Um, Shade really, I mean, is still amazing. Like, they did a series not too, they did like a 12-issue miniseries about the Shade not too long ago. Oh, that's Robert. right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, I love also, when the final... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I love in the final paragraph. Since then, the Shade has served as a member of the Justice Society and temporarily allied himself with the second Flash against the Rainbow Raider. Really? Yeah. Huh? It took Flash and the Shade to defeat the Rainbow Raider? That's You're not covering yourselves in glory there, fellas. But it makes sense with, you know, lots of colors, black, I'm shade. just saying, I don't think yeah. it should take two of anybody to defeat... The Rainbow Raider. I don't think it should. It shouldn't take two of the Golden Girls to defeat Rainbow Raider. I mean, just please. Crazy Quilt's going to show up and kick his ass. Yeah. Um, but it did give you a chance to see the acronym for Injustice Society of the World is ISW. I love that. It's just, I think it looks so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, Shade the Changing Man by Steve Ditko. Whoa! That is our second Steve Ditko entry in Who's Who. Pre- the last one was questioned on the previous issue. So clearly Steve had finally cleared his calendar enough to start doing Who's Who stuff. Uh, Shade the Changing Man is a very strange little strip. I still have trouble wrapping my brain around the original version here. But it's it's this dude from another dimension called the Metazone. And he comes to what he calls the Earth Zone. And he's wearing this thing called the M-Vest. Which gives him sort of weird, ambiguous powers. Like lets him scare people and distort his perceptions of him. A protective force field and whatnot. Um... But, like, the cool thing about him is just, as you read through his entry, it's a little rough to get through, by the way. It's a little rough going. But there's a lot of stuff about politics and subterfuge and stuff like that, which sound like that's probably the series had a lot of that in it, I'm guessing. Steve Ditko getting involved in politics? I can't believe it. But the art is so cool. Like, Shade is this dude who wears a very Kirby-esque vest. You know, it's it's yellow and red, lots of circles and lines and stuff like that. But then he's got this weird sort of, like, after image that appears around him of this weird, distorted, monster-like Hyde and Jekyll almost looking version of Shade, which is what bad guys would see to, to in, put fear and madness in them. So then in the Serpent, you get him flying at some bad guys. You get him wrestling with some dude who looks totally cool in a suit and his head's just sort of like fading away. And then you see his, you know, his lady love down there. So, um... I think it's a really cool entry, cool-looking, even though I could never get into the character in Pre-Crisis. Yeah, me too. I, I, the, much like what I talked about with Sandman, 
uh, similarly colored Sandman, oddly enough. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just found this bewildering. <laughs> I was like, what is this? Now, oddly enough, I ran a contest for my uh, on my old uh, JLA Satellite blog, jlasatellite.blogspot.com, which is still active, although I don't update it anymore. Um, and I asked people to write in and say who of the time would have been a great a hero to add to the classic JLA. And Shade the Changing Man won the contest. Was was it just Frank? Yeah, no, it was somebody. It was other people. People made the people made their their choices, and they thought that it would be a nice mix to add somebody unusual like that to the JLA. Yeah, that I did not see that coming, but but he won the contest. That would be so weird. <laughs> um, and, and you know, the post crisis version I talked about earlier from Peter Milligan is sort of fitting in that, as Rob described, bewildering is what this is, and Milligan's definitely is as well. But at least you have some through lines of the girlfriend and stuff to sort of follow in that series. But um, definitely an oddball. But looks so cool. All right. Next up is Shadowlast by Steve Lytle. And I got to say, I think this wins uh, Hottest Legionnaire entry of the issue. Um, very sexy picture of Shadowlast in her revealing skin-type black costume. And uh, in the background, you have this nice shot of her in her original costume, blasting some shadows out of her. You get a close-up of her face. Then you get her with her boyfriend, Monel. Um, very, very nice-looking piece. I love it. the pose of her flying with Monel. That pose is awesome. Yeah. Now, the main stock pose is a little dullish. She's just standing there, staring off in space with her hand glowing, uh, or with creating darkness. But it's not terrible or anything. It's no, just a little no. not exciting. Yeah, I would have actually preferred the the flying pose to be the main pose. That yeah. is a very dynamic shot. I love the way the cape is flying. It's a bit overall a very nice piece, and she is one of the coolest looking characters. Like she would have made a killer superpowers figure. <laughs> um, sexiest one, that's for sure. I mean, she's showing a lot of skin there. So plunging neckline and belly showing and booby clamp cl- uh, clasp. Booby clamp. Clasp. I'm trying to say clasp. Anyway, um, isn't that what it's called when you go to the store and say, I like a booby clasp? I believe anyway. that is exactly what it's called. Yep. Talks about how she sort of inherited her powers because she's the, the latest in a line of champions that have emerged from her planet. And she had to go through some rituals to, to gain her powers. And she has like a – almost like an, a, another hero that's like her understudy who's her cousin and stuff like that. Talks a lot about her origin and her connection with Monel. It's a nice piece. I really – I like it. Cool logo too. So. I like it mentions Shadowlast was first attracted to Brainiac 5, who she met in battle for her homeworld. Man, the chicks, ladies love Brainiac 5, man. That is crazy. Freaking Supergirl, man. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. It's Shadowlast, Supergirl. I think she's, yeah. yeah, guys, chicks. Not chicks, bad, buddy. Not dude. bad. They, uh, the girls like the brains. You know, what can I say? It's the only reason you and I have girls. So. Um, Shadow Thief. Up next by, again, this little-known artist named Joe Kubert. Uh, obviously a well-known Hawkman villain. This is a really cool piece because it's so simple. <laughs> that the most brilliantly designed supervillains ever. Because <laughs> he's just flat? or it's just a flat black shape. Yeah, it's a flat shadow. But Joe has expertly done sort of like cross-hatching to give – you know, some, some background so you can see the character moving. You can see the folds in his arm. You can see his face with black on black. It's really well done. I really enjoy it. And the serpent is, I love it when they use the dark purple serpent. It's beautiful. And they use a lot of heavy. I mean, this must have just stripped the hell out of the printing machine. <laughs> but they 
pull all the purple out of the whole damn thing. But it's just, it looks so good. You get a close-up of his face with that cowl on. You see him stealing a bag of money. You see him fighting Hawkman. Uh, really, really nice large piece. Well done. Uh, the, the, the entry talks about how he, you know, he found a way into another dimension and he gets this device, but it turns out it affects the magnetic lines of the earth. So his powers have like a negative effect on the planet. Then unfortunately he goes to work for Hyathis, which is like the JLA's most boring villain. And somehow his powers get fixed. And I, I like how it talks about too, like if you pass through his entity, it's like you get this weird cold feeling and he used that purposely to battle Hawkman at different points. So pretty cool. Carl Sands rocks. Yeah, this is a beautiful piece. I love that the logo is in is black and gray, too. It's very oh, yeah, yeah. beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And it's got a shadow. Yep. All right. Next one, one of my favorite fun entries of the book, Shaggy Man by Wendy Penny. How brilliant is that? I mean, she doesn't. She didn't draw anything for DC other than this. Yeah, I, I don't really get the connection. There really isn't one. Elf Quest. Yeah, but I mean, what does that have to do with Shaggy Man? Big hairy monsters and stuff. Yeah, but those are like little guys. What does that have to do? I don't know. I don't feel like there's any thematic. It totally works. Oh yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm very happy to have somebody as talented and out of the mainstream in terms of superhero comics as Wendy Penny doing a listing. So Shaggy yep. Man's as good as anybody. Well, he, he completely. It's like she drew him in such a way that he completely sort of fills the space, so it gives you the impression he's huge. You know, in the background, you see him. <laughs> Beating the Shaz out of, is that Hawkman or? Yeah, yeah. it's Hawkman. He's about to it, smack Green Arrow with Hawkman. <laughs> is this the only time the same hero appears in two serpents face to face? Oh. Uh, no, I'm sure, like, within the Batman Maybe stuff. Maybe Batman or Superman, yeah. yeah. But it, unusual, though. Usually yeah. you don't see, you know, like, two guys, the same guy back to back like that. That's true. You see him being created, and then you see him battling the other Shaggy Man, because there's actually two Shaggy Men. That's right. Because he's essentially like uh, a robot, uh, is basically what he is. And there's two of them, as we said. And um, I, I love this art. I love the way he fills the page. I love the way he looks. I mean, he's basically a giant Sasquatch, is kind of what it is. Yeah. I think they're trying to capitalize on the Bigfoot craze, is what's going on here. But then later on, um, I don't know if it's Grant Morrison or somebody else who came along and made General Eiling shave the Shaggy Man. <laughs> And put his brain in that body, and he became known as the general. I mean, that was friggin' genius, God. what they did there. I was like, no, I mean, don't. Uh, it was really clever. Really, really clever. I was like, okay. oh, wow, that's so cool. So, because there's two Shaggy Men, so it's not like he, they, they lost out on Shaggy Man forever. You can have both. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Love this entry. Shaggy Man was the villain in two different one-and-done JLA stories. Yeah. That are both great, JLA 104 and JLA 186. And I think that sort of, first of all, one and dones were more prevalent back then. But also I think writers knew the Shaggy Man was just not so compelling a character that you could get two months out of him. You know, like you yeah. could wrap it up in one month. So both those stories are really, really a lot of fun. Yep. Very good stuff. Uh, next up, Shakira, um, the Latin heartthrob. Uh, the singer or dancer. No, whoops, never mind. That's different. This is Mike Rells, uh, Shakira, from Warlord. And, um, in fact, we asked Dan Jurgens recently, who is sexier, uh, Yawera from Aquaman and the Others or Shakira? And he said Shakira. Hmm. <laughs> How about that? So, her ability is to transform into a little kitty cat. <laughs> Such a strange ability. Uh, and, and the entry leaves you wondering, is she a woman who turns into a cat? Or is she a cat that turns into a woman? Da, 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 da. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of people that can do this. And the entry talks quite a bit about a bunch of other people uh, that can transform into animals and such. 
And um, and Dan Jurgens made the argument that she should actually be naked when she transforms back. And forth. <laughs> I'd say her true ability is to get past the comics code month after month. That was truly <laughs> because I mean, how he got away with this? I guess because the book had a Tarzani vibe. I mean, Warlord himself was dressed very scantily. I mean, he just, yeah. he just had a loincloth and a helmet. That he was like, hey, everybody dresses this way. It's super hot down there, but this is an amazing costume for him to get for Mike Grell to get away with. Well, time. especially the the briefs. Um, yeah. How no to real say deli- this? <laughs> what? How to say this? Right. There's no delicate way to put this. Seventies. Her uh, her, her, <laughs> her her bikini brief is some strings holding together black fuzzy <laughs> cloth like you'd have from a cat, like a cat's hide, maybe. And so if you think about short black hairs down there. It's very 70s porn star. Yeah, that's what she looks like. She really does. Um, and, and I think that's what Jurgens was saying, is that she really is naked, and that's not, you know, No, fur. he's not saying that. That's, I think that's kind of. No, what, it's not. No, that's not but no, I think that's what Grell told him to think of it okay, as. I don't think that's the case, though. Anyway, um, she's very beautiful. She looks very young, but I don't think she's supposed to be all that young. Um but anyway, it's a beautiful picture of her. Her and her cat form is sort of winding around her leg. You see her in the background battling a pterodon or a pterodosaur or pterodactyl, whatever term's right. You see uh, the warlord and the cat again. It's, it's a great-looking piece. Mike Grell really did a good job on this. And if you're a warlord fan, this piece would be right, right, right up your alley. Yeah, oh, yeah, so. it's a great drawing. Great drawing. Yep. Next up, uh, The Shark by Dave Givens. A Green Lantern foe so good they gave him to Aquaman. Um, basically what happened here is you've got a hyper-evolved tiger shark, which became very uh, cognizant of who he was and intelligent enough to think and speak and all this stuff, and became a Green Lantern foe. And after a while, he did battle Aquaman as well. He battled you see uh, it him. What? We see it there. Oh, yes, you see it in the Serpent. They battled Aquaman for control of Atlantis. In the, in the foreground, you've got him swimming up. He, he looks, he's got the body of a human, basically, with a superhero costume or supervillain costume. But his face is like fleshy, <laughs> sharky, fin with teeth. You it's know, a shark thing? face. It's horrifying. Yes, Absolutely it's really, horrifying. really hideous. Um, it says in here that he was blown up, but then Guy Gardner returned him to life. What an idiot guy was. Um, anyway, as I said, him and ba- Aquaman battle for possession of Atlantis. Um, his current whereabouts are unknown. So Outside of the world's funnest, I think this is the only time Dave Gibbons ever drew Aquaman. I can't think of another time he's ever drawn Aquaman. It's a beautiful drawing. Did, did you say world's funnest or yeah, world's finest? No, world's funnest. The one shot. I didn't know that. Did a, it was a one shot that Evan Dorkin did a bunch of years ago that was basically just a bunch of gags, and it was a bunch of... Um, different artists and and Dave Gibbons drew the framing sequence featuring the Justice League and Aquaman is in that. It's Bat hmm. it's Batmite versus Mixes Mixes Pitalik. Oh jeez! And they trip hammer through all the different DC universes page yeah. by page by page. Oh uh, my god! It was like Bizarro comics. If it was it was just done as like a one little mini book. Um, yeah. And that features the original JLA and it features Aquaman drawn by Dave Gibbons and it said outside of that I think this who's who listing is the only time I can ever think. That he huh. drew Aquaman, which is too uh, bad because, of course, Dave Gibbons is a superb artist, and he would, I would have liked to see more of that. I was trying to think if Aquaman appeared, like, if there was any Dave Gibbons crossover books, or. I can't think I mean, of st- Certainly, he drew a lot of Green Lanterns. Yeah, no. I don't, um, think so. I don't know. Okay. 
All right. Uh, but yes, yeah, so um, Aquaman did in fact you know co-op a Green Lantern villain just because it makes sense. I mean, they need to fight. It's the shark. You know? So, where did he fight the shark? Where was it? Was that in like in Adventure of... Comics? Oh, okay. The uh, mid seventies run by uh, Paul Levitz and others and uh, Jim Aparo. One of one of my all time favorite Aquaman runs. It's a great, great series of issues. Very cool. All right. Next up is Shazam by Jerry Bingham, and we're talking about the Wizard Shazam at this point. Man, this art is awesome. Um, I did not get a chance to look up why Jerry Bingham did this particular piece. I don't. Did he ever draw any stuff? Or not as far as I know. Now, right now, if you think about the timing of this, as I said, this is one month before Legends, and right around Legends, they were trying to reestablish Captain Marvel in the post-crisis DC universe. They had that whole Shazam: A New Beginning. That wasn't drawn by Bingham, was it? I don't think so. No, that was uh, uh, Mandrake. Okay. All right. Well, I was shooting in the dark there. But, um, love, love, love this piece. It's got him in the foreground, the wizard. You know, he's long flowing beard, balding. He's got a blue cloak, and his hands are just sort of, you know, like a, I don't know, one fist is clenched, the other's in like a, ang- you know, a uh, angry claw kind of hand mode. And then the background, you, got, you see him flying as when he was a hero, carrying a couple of foes. You see him on a, a peak, and then you see him with Billy Batson um, in with the, with the big stone hanging over his head by a single string right before it collapses. Just, oh, so good. He was ripped uh, when he was younger. Yeah, well, he was, a, he was, well, he was like a superhero for 3000 years. Seriously. He was this three. He was, this is something I didn't know when I read this. He was a superhero for 3000 years known as the champion. I had no idea. No, I, I had no clue. And I didn't know that he had his own little Shazammy acronym. Like, you know, Shazam is an acronym for something and, and he says it and gains all this stuff. Shazam himself had one called Valerim, and it's all these, like, old-world gods that, you know, you don't ever hear about. It gave him his powers. Like, what? You know, so he eventually passed on his powers to, you know, Black Adam, and that didn't work out. He passed on his powers to Ugar, and then there was Shazamo. I don't quite get how all that worked. Anyway, um, so it's very interesting to read this, and and I'm wondering if this is an origin that was plumbed from the depths of all of the Shazam comics, or did they just plummet from maybe the 70s version? I, di- I just don't know. And, and then there's a part here, too, where he's sort of his own grandpa, his, his own grandpa, where he takes Captain Marvel, Shazam, our, you know, our Captain Marvel guy, from the far future. He, he literally pulls him back in time to help him battle the seven sins and imprison them. Well, like, aren't you sort of like creating a paradox by pulling someone from the future to come back in time and capture these guys, which has something to do with you creating Captain Marvel. <laughs> so can't get into time paradoxes at somewhere. Rip hunters has, has a headache. Um, so anyway, um, love the art. Absolutely. love the yeah, art. It gets, uh, there's a lot of movement and, and yeah, and action for a kind of boring guy visually. Yep. So, um, next up is shimmer art by Chuck Patton and Bob Smith. Well, I like the art team. The character does nothing for me, so it, this this entry is a bit of a miss for me. Um, she's got this weird ass disco gold and orange costume with a fro, an orange or a red fro, and geez, her hands are shooting sparkles and stuff, which just it doesn't work for me. Now, in the serpent, you get a nice shot of uh, Ohura in the background there, and. Um, then you see her with her brother. Johnny agrees with me. My dog Johnny does not like this listing at all. <laughs> well, he agrees with me. It looks exactly like Ohura. Uh, then you see Mammoth and Shimmer in the background doing, you know, messing with um, Cyborg. So you know, um, 
she's a she's a new Titans villain, new Teen Titans villain created by Perez and Wolfman with the Brotherhood of Evil. Or um, I'm sorry, Fierce of Five. Fierce of Five, Five, yeah. Yep, sorry about that. And it mentions here my favorite bit whenever they mention the Fearsome Five, how they all answered an ad in a magazine, which cracks me up. <laughs> um, the Craigslist super team. Exactly. So she she is a transmuter. She can change one object to another uh, as long as – now, if it's very limited, though, she can transform one element or compound into another, and it only lasts for a few minutes, and it can only affect items within three feet of herself. <laughs> I get the sense, like, when they did this, they're, like, they're writing and they're, like, you know, Firestorm's way too powerful. Um, what if we dumb that power down and make it a little more reasonable and, oh, give it to Shimmer? It's kind of like how I feel like this happened. Or Molecule Man. I don't know. Whatever. But, um, and then it mentions Dr. Jason here from The Outsider, so I started to pay attention less. Um, that's all I got. Yeah, I love Chuck Patton, as everybody knows. But this, yes. I don't know whether it's the anchor or just the way the, I don't know. This, this piece is just to me not terribly attractive to look at. Maybe it's the character, like you said, it's just the character visually. I don't, I don't know. The costume is very weird. I yeah, I know this one just sort of misses for me. Although her operate race vibrations is in New Jersey, so that's nice. <laughs> you know, I think you hit upon something that I should have said. Yeah, the art. There's nothing wrong technically with the art. It is. It it is the character. And the costume and the colors. Maybe. I mean, red hair, yellow costume. Well, we orange. like red hair. When do we not like red hair? Here. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Um, it's just, uh, it just screams late 70s, but it's the mid 80s, you know, at this point. So, final entry. And let me tell you, this is the way to freaking go out right here. Shining Knight, classic logo of Shining Knight, art by John Bolton, Michael Bolton's brother. It is absolutely beautiful. You've got Shining Knight riding Winged Victory coming straight at you. you know, well, not actually a little bit to the side. You see in the background Merlin enchanting his stuff. You see Shining Knight fighting some hoods. You see him attacking a Nazi airplane in the Serpent. The Serpent is actually in front of the horse's hooves. God, this is gorgeous. Now, before this issue came out, there was a rumor within the comic circles, which of course meant just in magazines because there was no internet, that they were going to get Frank Frazetta to do this. Because Frank Frazetta drew some Shining Knight stories. Did he really? In his youth, yes. And they reprinted them around this time uh, under a a series called uh, Masterworks, I think. And it was um, a a one-issue – DC didn't do it. They licensed it out to another company where they took one artist and they printed on nice paper uh, some of their classic stories. And one issue was Frank Rosetta, one was Bernie Wrightson. I forget who the rest were. And That's on, freaking cool. Yeah, and on the cover, it's The Shining Knight, and it's Shining Knight stories. So that was the rumor that they were going to get Frank Frazetta. They obviously didn't. I don't think – I'm sure if they even tried, they realized they couldn't afford it. I mean, Frank Frazetta would have charged what probably would have cost the, all the other artists combined in this book to do. <laughs> so they got a guy – I mean, they – yeah, they clearly – I mean, maybe they never even went for Frank Frazetta. Maybe there was just a rumor that had no basis in, in truth because I'm sure even the editors knew there's no way we can, we can pay Frank Frazetta for this. They got a great guy to do it. John Bolton is a superb artist. He has a classic style. He's perfect for Shining Knight. So they, I have no, you know, it would have been neat to see Frank Rosetta do this. Of course, because it would have been like a one in a million. But they got a great guy to do it. This is a beautiful piece. And it, it's the kind of thing where you say, hey, they could do more with this character. This guy is so cool looking. They, they could do more with him. What blows my mind is after the All-Star Squadron, because, you know, he was a regular in All-Star Squadron. Yes. Like, he went into obscurity for, like, 15 years. Mm-hmm. He just mm-hmm. 
friggin' vanished. Yep. You know, the, he didn't get picked up again until Jeff Johns brought him up in Stars and Stripes, um, which was about 15 years later. Nuts. Yep. Now, it's interesting. I like reading his origin. He, he is an, an Arthurian knight named Sir Justin. And uh, he meets Merlin, who enchants his weapons and his uh, horse and stuff. And then he, you know, a la Captain America, gets frozen in an iceberg until the 1940s, where he's woken up. And he joins the All-Star Squadron and the Seven Soldiers of Victory and such. And he just, I mean, he was such a mainstay of the All-Star Squadron. I just, to me, he's such a big, important character of the DC Universe, but a lot of people didn't know who he was. If you want a, a great Shining Knight moment, go to Netflix, which you have, you know you do. And look up Justice League Unlimited. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, I wish I could remember the name of the episode. Just find it. It's um, it's an episode where all the Justice League are busy, and the only people left to protect like Metropolis from the general in Shaggy Man's body. By the way, not not really. He's a monster in that. But either way, is all these normal human people that just have special weapons, and one of them is Shining Knight. And there's a battle with Shining Knight where he will not give up. And it is, oh, so good. So good. Yeah, there's a lot of potential in this character that you, I think only Roy Thomas really bothered to, and you, Jeff John, I didn't read the Jeff John stuff, so I don't know, but it, Roy, Roy Thomas seemed to know how much you could do with him because he made him a fairly large fixture in, the, as you say, Ulster Squadron. I mean, he was important to Stars and Stripes, but it, it was more about who he was and why he was, like, I think a janitor, I think, at her school. Yeah, maybe. something like that. Yeah. That I um, remember. So, John Bolton, help me out here. Like, where can people find more of his stuff? Because this is freaking gorgeous. Uh, I know I've okay. seen his stuff, but I can't remember. He's done a lot of book cover art. I think that's okay. really made his career. He did a lot of stuff for, I believe, Epic Illustrated, that Marvel magazine. Mm-hmm. He did uh, a lot of Marvel, the black and white magazine stuff, too. He did an entire issue of, of um, I think, Marvel Preview, which was their Marvel's black and white magazine, and it's all Thor. And uh, it is uh, a beautiful – it's all, like, done in washes and stuff. It is mm-hmm. absolutely gorgeous. I have it. It is stunning. So this guy was killer. This is a great guy to get. Yeah. yeah, he is. Man. Um, so that is the issue. Then you get to the back page. You got six great, great covers. Uh, Hawkman number three where he's fighting. Look at that. Shadow Man – or a Shadow Thief. Imagine that. Uh, Sergeant Rock, issue 412, in the midst of war, a moment of humanity. Um, <laughs> is that Rock getting some nookie? Uh, it is. He's, I think yeah. that's Mil- Marie, uh, Michelle, Michelle, Mademoiselle Marie, I believe. He's, oh, he's so she hits it with Alfred and the Rock. Look at that. Um, All-Star Squadron, with? Uh, number 62, with Shining Knight on the cover. This is this is the point of the kind of the sad point of All Star Squadron, yeah. where they were just treading water. They're like, okay, crisis is coming. We've got to wrap this up. So for like seven issues, they just did like origins yeah. and, and yeah. character pieces until Young All Stars launched. Um, Secret Origin, starring you know the uh, Green Lantern and the Sandman. Oh, so good. Brian Bolin cover. It is, isn't it? And it's the that's the Sandman origin we talked about earlier, yep. meaning that Wesley Dodds, Blue Beetle number five. Which is uh, loving that. He's got the question jumping in there. And Warlord number 109, which has got a, a big lady zapping somebody on the front. So, really cool. The only, uh, you know how they always tell you where people are going to appear? The only one really worth mentioning here was Shazam, where it says Legends. Uh, it says you'll appear in Legends, and it's like a month away. So, woo! Man. Good that was stuff. good stuff. It's, it's, it's like, other than like Sergeant Rock and Saturn Girl, I don't know that there's a lot of. 
big name characters no, in here. No, there really isn't. But there's some really great. Now, there's some entries I really couldn't care less about. I mean, Sarah fan, whatever. But um, there are some really nice pieces done for some lesser characters. I think it's it's nice. It's well done. Mm-hmm. So yeah. All right. Well, then let's move on. It's time to do our feedback part of the show, folks. This is who's who, hows and whys. And uh, this is your comments on the previous shows. Remember, if you're going to be talking on the social medias, please use the hashtag PoundFWPodcast. And with the Who's Who show, remember, the best way to really get your thoughts and commentary to us is through our blogs. Put a comment on one of our blogs or send us an email. And Rob, what's that email address? Firewaterpodcast at Comcast.net. Yep. And uh, we, we look at the, the other social medias, and we look at Instagram, we look at Tumblr, we look at Facebook, we look at tum- Twitter, we, and we pull some bits from there. But for the most part, most of those comments usually end up being you know just very nice complimentary things, saying great show, or just it's a little piece. With who's who stuff, we're typically looking for a little more sort of long-form type commentary. So right out of the gate, i got to say, folks, there, is, uh, there was a huge, huge uh, <laughs> lot of love came our way for the special entries we did last issue uh, where we had several guest stars give their argument for whether Robin or Red Tornado should have been the lead character on the cover. And uh, everyone really seemed to enjoy that. And Chris Franklin (laughs) stole the show. And um, we've received several requests for more clips from that Behind the Mask show that he discovered on YouTube, apparently. Hopefully hopefully there's more footage out there to be obtained. I tell you, I would love to see more. So. Uh, we got an email from Stephen Bird. He says, so great to hear Rob mention Alan Brennert in this latest Who's Who episode. The man and his work are tragically overlooked these days. In his Batman stories, Brennert proved himself to be not only the go-to guy to explore full storytelling potential parallel Earths, though the weirdness, tragedy, adventure, and pathos that concept suggests, but he showed that he was one of the best writers ever to tell Batman story, period. There's a good reason why – there's a good reason that Brennard had two stories in the original 1989 Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told. Thanks for another great podcast. Thank you, Stephen. And if you're a fan of Alan Brennard, which I know you are, uh, you want to listen to the next episode of the Supermates podcast, which is hosted by one of our regulars, Earth 2 Chris, and his wife, Cindy. And I am a guest on that talking about Alan Brennard Batman stories. So, oh, wow. Yes, I think it's Very episode cool. eight which should be coming out, I think, the same week this dropped. So if you like Alan Brennert and you want to hear two nerds talk for Alan, about Alan Brennert for 90 minutes with a woman occasionally chiming in, <laughs> bemoaning the fact that we're talking and not letting her get a wording in edgewise, you'll enjoy the show. Hey, forgive me if my memory's failing me. Doesn't he have a story in Hey Kids Comics? He also? does. He does yeah. have a story in Hey. I should have. I should always mention that. I'm a poor promoter of my own stuff. He has a story in my book, Hey Kids Comics, Shula Tales from the Spinnerack, and it's a wonderful story, and I am truly honored that a, a guy that I worship as much as I do, Alan, um, has a story in my book. Available on Amazon. Available hey Kids on Comics. Amazon. Yep. Uh, we heard from our buddy Diablo Frank, as we always do, and uh, I just picked out some of his highlights, some of his uh, lengthy and lengthy comments. He talks about the puzzler. He says, the puzzler, sigh. Based on his logo, did he eventually go to work for Scholastic Press, constructing brain twisters for bananas and dynamite? <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you can work a bananas or dynamite reference into uh, into a sentence, it's going to get read on this show, folks. I'm just saying. Um, 
Then he says, during a few months that I attempted to run a Game Master, the Mayfair Games campaign, one of my players accidentally killed the hell out of Rainbow Raider with one extremely well-rolled punch. He kept trying to find ways to save Roy Bivolo, not limited to flying into a pile of mattresses, but the dice gods had decreed his brutal end and subsequent disposal in a shallow grave. It was exciting and funny at the time and remains the only thing about Rainbow Raider that does anything for me. <laughs> Speaking of Mayfair, uh, now that we've got this who's who, or by the end of tonight, when we have this who's who behind us, I'm diving back into the Atlas of the DC Universe, just saying. Uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams are so associated with Raza Ghoul, but I grew up with Mike Barr and uh, Trevor Von Eden and Jerry Bingham. So this is my demon's head. He's Batman's Bond. This is interesting. I, I, once I read this, I was like, ooh. He says, he's Batman's Bond villain. Yes. And worked very well in that capacity as an occasional Grand Scope mastermind who lost power through smaller schemes and overuse. Huh. Very good observation. Uh, on the last episode, I expounded upon my love for the character of the Red Bee. And uh, it's sort of an illness, considering I've never really read any of his classic adventures, just as references. But anyway, he wrote in here that uh, Valerie D. Orzio once pointed out how often DC received proposals for Red Bee revamps that DC Comics wanted absolutely nothing to do with publishing. <laughs> So I guess I'm not the only one. I, I kept thinking I was the only one who wanted a Red Bee revamp, but I guess a lot of people did. Uh, talked about Rex the Wonder Dog. This is worth noting. Rex and his animal friends damn near got Mark Wade and Gerald Jones fired off a flash in Green Lantern during a minor crossover for daring to tread such silly ground in a modern self-serious DCU. That's terrible. Rex was used to great effect in there, so that's just ridiculous. And then I asked, I posed the question, was there ever any hanky-panky between Earth 2 Dick Grayson and Helena Wayne? Simply because even though they're kind of brother and sister, they're kind of not. You know, they're both the Batverse. Dick Grayson is, you know, at least nowadays, well-known for betting anything in a Bat costume. Um, so I, he wrote back, he said, they teased Dick and Helena romance, which makes you wonder how much of a great detective could uh, botch math as simple as half your age plus seven. <laughs> You're Uncle Dick, you sleazebag. You're at least a teenager when Catwoman reformed and Helena was conceived. <laughs> uh, we heard from our buddy Ange, who runs the Supergirl blog. And he wrote to us about Reactron, which is a Supergirl villain. He said, Reactron is one of the few villains that can truly be called a Supergirl rogue. He does return in the new Krypton storyline. That's a... Uh, very post-crisis. In the new Krypton storyline from a few years back, he kills Zor-El in battle and then self-destructs, blowing up the whole new Krypton world. He ends up, And then he says he ends up becoming a Power Girl and Doom Patrol foe in the immediate post-crisis DCU. Paul Coverwork like to reuse his own guys. Uh, he mentions Raven. He says, you guys mentioned her body type being somewhat unique or underrepresented in comics. It is one of the reasons I loved Perez's Titans. Corey, Donna, Raven all had different body types, from thin to voluptuous. Yes, that is one of the things Perez excelled at, was making people, these were unique human beings, even though they were all superheroes. There was not one uniform body. So. And that's interesting. I never thought about the fact that both, you know, all three of those had different body types. I never yeah. put that together. I mean, very, you know. Uh, Donna Troy being my personal favorite growing up. I mean, I was so in love with the Perez, Donna Troy. Whew, man, I might need to take a break. Um, all right. And then he talks about Robot Man 2. He says, supposedly, the design of the new Robot Man 
drawn by Joe Staten in Showcase, was a ripoff of a burn robot uh, called, like, Raj 3000. Raj, who that? Raj, I guess it was Raj. I've never actually heard it said out loud. Yeah, now that you say it. I, Raj I mean, 2000, yeah. yeah. And uh, so that is why Burn supposedly did not uh, put the, the new Robot Man in his uh, drawing of Robot Man. Interesting. <laughs> A little interesting, you know. It's weird. John Byrne getting his feathers ruffled. So strange. That's not hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I got an email from Anthony Durso, a.k.a. The Toy Room. It mentions Quake Master. As much as I love loser Batman villains, a la <laughs> the Calendar Man, Killer Moth, etc. Ugh. Uh, this, Calendar Man. We haven't heard him mentioned in months. Yes, yeah, thank God. Uh, this jobber was created by Bob Rozak. It's for the Earth-Shattering Disaster issue of DC Special Number 28. Which may explain why he was referenced in that issue of Secret Society of Supervillains that Rob mentioned, along with the Seismatic Twins, also created by Rosak. <laughs> the Seismatic Twins just sound like people who were like sick and you know were having spasms. <laughs> That's what it like. they're, they're just these gray robot guys with these funny ears. They're total losers. It's, I love I love the word jobber. I just that just cracks me up. Yeah. Uh, Quicksilver, he says uh, Murphy Anderson is an underrated in my opinion And really nails these Golden Age characters It's interesting to see that he still had the chops While his contemporaries like Carmen Infantino and Gil Kane were phoning it in um, Alright, I'll address the last part first I don't necessarily think Gil Kane and Carmen Infantino were phoning it in But they certainly weren't producing the stellar work they were famous for in their youth Let's put it that way, I think that's fair to say uh, Murphy Anderson though, you're right, like I didn't – it's not that I didn't know Murphy Anderson, but I didn't really have a strong connection to him until, until we started doing this Who's Who podcast. I love Murphy Anderson stuff now. Absolutely love it. I think he's great. I think he is a wonderful Silver Age artist that was like a good bridge between Silver and Bronze Age hmm. is the best way I would put it. Really dig the stuff I'm seeing, especially him as an anchor. Oh, him as an anchor is awesome too. So, And that Quicksilver was a nice piece. Um, and didn't he do the Ray as well? He did the Ray, yeah. Yeah, the Ray is friggin' boss. Anyway, he goes on to say, Ragdoll. <laughs> this is what he wrote. Ragdoll, living in a movie, hot tramp, daddy's little cutie. <laughs> I don't ever need to hear you sing, attempt to sing Aerosmith songs ever again. Uh, I didn't sing it. I song spoke it. I did a Shatter I don't style. need – oh, that's much better. Anyway, and he says, yes, James Robinson made this character even more twisted – get it? Twisted? Contortionist? In Starman. The Riddler, Frank Gorshin in the 66 TV series, really put this character on the map. Prior to that, he only had two appearances. That's right. 1948 and one in 1965. I didn't realize he'd only had two appearances. Yep. Then, then he calls us to task here. It's Roy Raymond, TV detective. So we take Roy Thomas to task for making all the Graysons related, but we have no issue with Dan Jurgens making all the Raymonds related. Hey, everybody loves Raymond. Let's just put it at that. Oh, Lord. I believe if you go back to that episode, I said nothing about that little factoid, so I think you're assuming I'm okay with it. I think you're just going to have to pass this off. The Shy's got a weak spot for Firestorm. I <laughs> uh, heard from our buddy Jeff R. He always gives us our uh, egregious omission of the month. And this one, he says, was an obvious one. Quisp. Look at that. Yeah, I, mean, I should have. I mean, as much as I uh, hate that character... Um, it was significant to Aquaman for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, like, you didn't make it in the DCU until you got your own imp. 
Yeah. And that was Aquaman's imp. He was the he was Aquaman's Mr. McPitalik and Batmite and Prody and uh, whatever the friggin' Flash one was and Mopey. So I mean, it it definitely <laughs> the the Great Gazoo. The Great Gazoo. It definitely made Aquaman you know a, a, a bigger level character. But so he did deserve a listing. And of course, Grant Morrison brought him back for JLA. Yeah, many, I did. Many years later. Uh, yeah. But uh, so it would have been fun. Like maybe a half page. That might. But yeah, that's what exactly what it should have been. Yeah, absolutely. Half, half page for Quizlet. Half yeah. page for Quiz. Now he points out here. He says maybe next year uh, on the ambush bug number three uh, edition of this show, which he says should be done on April first. By the way, um, apart from Mopey, is there a single character in that book who hasn't had a high profile comeback between now and then? I honestly don't know because I haven't read that ambush bug issue in years, and we'll find out when I, we cover it. I don't it. think Egg Fu has come back. Yes, he has. Has he? In fifty two. Is he back? Oh, okay. Oh, you're right. He had you're a right. big you're right. comeback. You're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I forgot. Yeah. Okay. So, um, in case you, because we haven't actually talked about it in a long time, once we finish this run of Who's Who, um, we're, we're going to do all 26 issues. We're on 20 now. Then we're going to do an issue of sort of cleanup, if you will, which is we're going to cover Ambush Bug number three, which has a whole bunch of uh, unmentioned characters. We've got a great article from Amazing Heroes that Michael Bailey sent us. It's all these characters that should have been included in Who's Who. And just a few other odds and ends from the Who's Who era, the original Who's Who series. Then, with the completion of episode 27, we are going to launch into Who's Who Update 87. Now, last episode, Rob uh, and I had a discussion on the show about what we were going to do with the numbering. Will that become Who's Who number 28? when we cover Update 87. And um, Rob had a pretty strong opinion. He shared on the show. I kept my mouth shut. I had a different opinion. And, and I'm sorry, Rob, you can, you can tell me to stop at any point here, but it got pretty heated. Um, we got lawyers involved. Eventually we had to go to arbitration. But I think the paperwork, well, I, I've got some um, documents I need to get notarized. But after that, it's done deal. What's going to happen is we are going to change the name of the show dependent upon the volume we're working on. So... We'll wrap up the 26-issue series, do that 27th bonus episode, if you will. Then the following episode will become Who's Who Podcast, Update 87, Volume 1. We'll run through those. Then it'll become Who's Who Update, uh, or Who's Who Podcast, Update 88, Volume 1, 2, 3, etc. And we'll do the Legion and all that. Um, so there you go. A little information for you. The more you know. Uh, yes, for, okay. th- for three weeks after that who's who argument, uh, Shag and I actually recorded the episodes of the Fire and Water podcast separately, and I had to stitch them together because we weren't talking. The pain in the ass. Oh, actually, we're still not talking. That's why that was out of sync just now. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, so, also, Jeff pointed out last episode, uh, he talked about there was a, an alternate dimension version of Prez that Firestorm fought, and it blew my mind. And it turns out, yes, it is the Flying Dutchman. So, I guess I never picked up on the fact that he was supposed to be Prez, so I'm totally going to go back and reread that now. <laughs> um, wow. Very interested to read that. Uh, we got an email from Earth to Chris, who of course contributed to the uh, last Who's Who episode. He said, "Why is it so surprising I'm married? I told you I found that clip online. It's not like I took several hours out of my life to make it up or anything. That would be a pathetic cry for help. Did I mention I have kids too?" <laughs> Now, if any of you have listened to the Supermates podcast, and you should because it's a lot of fun, you will realize that his wife, Cindy, is just as much of a nerd as Chris is. It's just she's a nerd for different things. And you get on – like they did a whole episode about toys, and she goes on about Strawberry Shortcake. And she Mm. is like a major nerd for Strawberry Shortcake and Barbie. So it's just – she's just a nerd for different girly things as opposed to – 
Chris, who was a nerd for G.I. Joe, and he tells a really tearful story about losing his Duke figure down a storm drain and all those uh, flag points that never got to use. So, you know, they're both nerds, and they really are a good fit for one another. So You, sh- you should be careful with your terminology you're throwing around there. there. There's a great Venn diagram, maybe I'll put it up in the Tumblr if I remember to, that explains the differences between nerds and geeks and dweebs and, and things like that. And uh, a geek... I think a geek would probably be more what they are, which is okay. someone who's obsessive and intelligent, but has the social skills. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, okay, then geeks then. Because a nerd is yeah. lacking the social that's skills. That's true. That do Same we thing, too, yeah. yeah. So get yeah, geeks then. All right, yeah, that's, so. that's fair. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really particular about that, which is why I, everything I have is geek in the name, because I got the social skills. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, hey, I got the ladies. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Earth 2 Curse continues. He talks about Quicksilver. He goes, I think that villain, in meaning in the background, the serpent, is the Wasp. He appeared in what I believe was DC's only reprint of Quality's Quicksilver run in a Flash 100 pager back in the 70s. I remember when Wade brought him into the Flash title and I pulled a shag and said, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> uh, talks about Red Tornado. Specifically, the robotic one. It was a disappointing entry. Rob's back issue article was great, though. Really crappy how they built him up and tore him down at the same time. Maybe the story sat in inventory for a while, and DC decided to dump it before it was totally useless, continuity-wise. Rob, perhaps so. Yes. Maybe. Uh, uh, no, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I don't okay. know. I never I did not uncover anything like that. But yeah, they Red Tornado was. Definitely been knocked around in terms of killed, brought back, killed, brought back, killed, brought back. It just got ridiculous. He's the, the Kenny of the DC universe. He's, there's a couple people that talk about fall apart, lad. And, uh, you know, they Robot Man, Vision, you know, uh, Red Tornado, all these guys. Anybody's robotic, just fall, cyborg. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Rex the Wonder Dog. Why wasn't he related to Streak, Alan Scott's dog, who took over his own title? Did Streak really take over Alan yes. Scott's title? Yes, yeah, he did. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I think both were drawn by Alex Toth in their early appearances. Uh, according to about his uh, comments on Robin, I really like their work. Though Stacy, meaning Ken Stacy, goops on Batman's oval emblem. They grew two Batman and never had it. And Dick's teenage parted hair. Apparel and art would have been awesome. And I love Brave and the Bull number 182. Or maybe Ordway due to his aforementioned Infinity Inc. connection. He and Helena did have a slightly disturbing romantic attraction they never acted on. This was explored a bit in the Huntress backup in Wonder Woman. I know, so, I know so many people that have said the only reason they ever bought Wonder Woman is for the Huntress backups. It's the, only thing, it's the only book I can think of where that many people have said, yeah, I didn't even read Wonder Woman. I just bought it for those Huntress backups. We're going to piss off Frank again. <laughs> he's taking us to task about picking on the Bronze Age Wonder Woman, but I can tell you, I hear the same thing I'm, about I'm the just Huntress saying backups. it's what I heard. I mean, yeah, I, I, I hear it too. Yeah, it's not, it's, not a con, it's not a condemnation of Wonder Woman. It's just reporting what people have told me. Okay. Yeah, sure. That's how he'll take it. Um, we heard from Count Drunkula, our buddy Ryan Daly, who runs the Black Canary blog. Says Steve Lealoha did the finished work for Larry Hama's pencils on GI Joe number twenty-one, the famous silent issue. Hama used his last name for the scuba-clad Joe character, Torpedo, whose file was Edward Lealoha. Now you know. <laughs> GI Joe. Um, like Frank, I really enjoyed the Ray series by Chris Priest in the nineteen nineties. By the way, 
not just Frank, Shank also enjoyed that series. Um, I discovered him first through the number zero issue during the Zero Hour event, and I liked the character more than any other DC hero, DC hero for a couple of years, years in which I was not reading much DC. Ray Ter- Terrell gave me hope for the future and my love life when he wore down Black Canary to the point where she gave him pity sex. A great moment for a Gen X hero. Yes, the Ray, Ray Terrell, teenage hero, absolutely knocked boots with Black Canary. They made no bones about it. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh. So, um, I loved the Ray. From the, the original, I started with the first miniseries, the first issue by Joe Quesada. Yeah. Or art by Joe Quesada. I was just like, oh my gosh, that six issue miniseries was so good. And then when they started the monthly book, I mean, they, towards the end, I feel like it was a little too steeped in the Vandal Savage stuff and, and, and his little brother. But I mean, still, really, really, really love, love, love that character. So. Uh, he mentions I got a D plus in art school and uh, in art in high school, and I'm pretty sure I could draw a better Reverse Flash than Corman Infantino oh. does in this page. The man is a legend, of course, but his who who's entries are lifeless, and this one is just god awful. Uh, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to beat too much more. On he's Carmine, he's but, not wrong. Yeah, and then uh, as much as I would love to DC to bring back Rex the Wonder Dog, I'm sure that given the current editorial direction, his origin would be tied to illegal dog fighting and depraved violence against animals. Hashtag better off dead. Oh my god! Sadly, I think you're probably entirely right. Somehow, I missed that comment until you just read it. Holy yeah. crap! Uh, it talks about the Riddler because that Dave Mazzucchelli Riddler is a breath as uh, that Dave Mazzucchelli Riddler page is as breathtaking as Dave Stevens Catwoman. Then his next point is mm, Dave Stevens Catwoman. <laughs> Everyone loved that Riddler piece by Mazzucchelli. Yeah, across the board. Yeah, they did. It's amazing. I, I actually, we don't. Even, there's like a lot of comments about it. I didn't even mention that many of it simply because it's just accepted as fact. It's yeah, like every single person was like, "Yeah, that, that one, that one kills." Yep. Uh, heard from our buddy Siskoid. He says, um, "Rip Hunter, Rob's disinterest in Rip is disturbing." <laughs> Time Masters was awesome. His role in Booster Gold Second Series was awesome. I love time travel. I love Rip Hunter. Thank you for that, Siskoid. As my fellow time travel buddy, I'm, I'm glad you put that in there. Uh, a lot of other good comments, too. And check out his blog, siskoi.blogspot.ca, for several Who's This entries, which is all about some of the minor characters from Who's Who that we cover. He does this sort of as a, sort of as a companion piece. I mean, it's his own project. It's not, like, affiliated, but it's, it, it fits very nicely with our show, and we appreciate it. So, heard from our buddy Philemon. Uh, the, the running gag of Philemon always is, like, everything he says we typically disagree with. So let's see how it works out this time. says, uh, clearly the dominant spot on the cover ought to go to... Rex the Wonder Dog. <laughs> oh, fine, Lemon. But he makes a good point. At this point, he had 46 issues of his own series. Who else in this issue could say that? <laughs> makes a fair point, you know. It's pretty good. He says, uh, this, this is actually one of the most insightful things uh, I, that really made me think. Right, coming up here, believe it or not. From Philemon. I know, maybe his brother wrote it or something. Anyway, he says, did the question become cooler in post-crisis or... Does he seem cooler as he reflects the coolness of Rorschach? Mm. Don't get me wrong. I prefer the original, but I don't think DC really knew what to do with him until Watchmen came along. That's an interesting that, point. Yeah. I just like, oh, my gosh, did Rorschach inform the future question? Which is like, you know, it's like a snake eating its own tail. But, wow. Or, or that's the grandfather paradox right there. <laughs> you know? But, wow, that's, that's really, like... That's got me thinking. i got to ask some friends that now because that's really, really good. 
here you go. And here's where he goes off the crazy train. Uh, wrong again, Shag. I love, 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 love Raven. She's my second favorite Titan, after Jericho, of course. <laughs> he had to get that in. This guy, like, lives in a cardboard box behind a building. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, she does have a lot of powers. One of the powers she does not have, however, is the ability to levitate things after saying magic words. That fact that – the fact that she goes – does exactly that on the T-Titans Go cartoon is the number one reason why I can't watch that show. And I swear will be the reason one day that I have an embolism for <laughs> contemplating the sheer stupidity of that decision. <laughs> oh, I love Five Limit. He just cheers me up. Uh, heard from our buddy Martin Stein returns. Last episode, we <laughs> shared some details about Martin Stein Returns' youth and how formative Dave Stevens' Phantom Girl picture was for him. Is that is that fair and yeah, he, comfortable? Yeah, he, he clearly indicated that he masturbated to Dave Stevens' female. There. All right, let's just – All right, so we got really un- uncomfortable reading his comments, and I love his response. I'm not sure why you guys were so squeamish about reading my comment on the last issue. I thought you guys wanted deeply personal testimonials. <laughs> there's a there's, line, Robert. There's a yeah, line. Yeah, there's a line, Robert. <laughs> uh, we got an email. Let's just move on. We got an email from Mark Sweeney Jr. regarding Rainbow Raider. Uh, Old Roy has had a – speaking of masturbating. Old Roy has whoa. had a bit of lame, bit of a lame-o career and a Don Hakusu injury doesn't do anyone any favors <laughs> from my introduction to the character's booster gold number 19. This comic falsely led me to believe that Raider was a heavyweight villain in the TCU. <laughs> <laughs> Mark reminds me of like that guy on, you know, on the island who doesn't know World War II was ended. As, oh, uh, as he delivers a serious beatdown to Booster Gold, really makes him look like a chump in his own title. Great cliffhanger, too, with Booster screaming, I'm blind, or something like that. It wasn't until years ago that I found the second part of the story, and I don't remember how it was resolved. It's funny how, as a kid, I'd be satisfied with just half a story. Those are some of the comics that I remember best. Anyway, they could reprint that first issue as the slimmest TVB ever called the greatest Rainbow Raider story ever told. <laughs> I would buy that as a digital comic if they did it. I would buy it. Just I, I for the sheer goofiness, I'd pay like the 99 cents or $1.99 or whatever for it. I hope people could understand you through your laughing and your tears. I mean, I could because I'm reading along with Greatest you, Rainbow Ra- Ra- Raider story ever told. That, would that be is hysterical. Be great. I would buy that. Covered by Brian Bolland or something. Sure. You know, he makes a good point, too, about our youth, how completely satisfied we could be with half a story. Yeah, you, you know? just sort of accept things. Yeah. yeah, you'd be like, oh, I wonder what happened there. Like in Justice League. My first Justice League comic I ever had was Justice League number 171 where um, Mr. Terrific dies, right? right? The JLA-JSA team up that year. Yeah, I didn't have 172 for probably 10 years. <laughs> and I was perfectly fine. Well, right. I did read the Who's Who eventually to figure out what the hell happened. But I was perfectly fine with it. So, yeah. All right. I uh, heard from our buddy Kyle Benning in all capital letters. He writes, Shag! For shame! You don't like Raza Ghoul? Go get yourself a copy of Limited Collector's Edition C-51 and love this character now. He's right on that because that reprints all the Neil, the Denny O'Neill, the Neil Adams stories. It's it's you know much like Digest, Treasuries were like the first trade paperbacks, so it tells a complete story, and that is a great book. Really? Okay. Yeah, Neil Adams wraparound cover, oh killer stuff. Uh, heard from our buddy Martin Gray. By the way, we're just, I should say, we're just cherry-picking stuff that people wrote, by the way, just because we have so much feedback. Um, so I don't want anyone to feel snubbed when we, like, you know, I just read one comment from Kyle, but he wrote, like, a nice big thing of section. So if you want to go out and read this stuff, go out to Firestorm Fan 
look for Who's Who. Go to the comment section. That's where most of this stuff comes from. Some of it comes from Aquaman Shrine. There's a couple lost souls that can't seem to find their way to Firestorm Fan that post over there, or they just feel sorry for Rob. Uh, and then some of them come from emails. But, you know, just wanted to let you know there's a lot more great content from everyone, and I wish we had time to read the whole thing or publish a book every week or every month. I don't know. But just didn't want anyone to feel slighted when we just ran one or two just so we can get through it all. I uh, heard from Martin Gray. He says, Roy, Rom- blah, blah, blah. Roy Raymond's comeback was in Superman in the 70s, not DC Comics Presents. So that was my bad. And he says, when Firestorm debuted, I wrote in suggesting a relationship. Well, Roy, Ron, two incredibly stuffy names. They had to be related in the DCU. That was before, and probably DC, knew about Ronnie's background. Remember Roy Raymond Jr. as Owlman? Best forgotten. I totally forgot about Roy Raymond Jr. as Owlman. You probably don't even know what we're talking I about. I have no idea. It was in... No, you don't need to explain it. Batman and the Outsiders. No, what? What? When was this? After, after Infinite Crisis. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I have no idea then. Okay. Yep. Heard from Benton Gray. Uh, I, he talked about uh, the superhero teams that we had kind of like bantered back and forth about superhero teams. Like we would compile of our own. And he said he put it together for a mod. And I assumed he meant a module for a role-playing game. He corrects me. He says, nope, Shag, not role-playing. When I mention a DC mod, I mean something a bit more complicated. That um, I have modded or modified a game called Freedom Force, which is undoubtedly the greatest superhero game ever made. I basically created my ideal DC Comics PC game using Freedom Force as a base. And he goes on to list a lot of details about it. He gives links on it. You can get all that off Firestorm Fam. Uh, He's absolutely right. Freedom Force is a great game. I don't play video games. I'm not a video game guy. I, I can't even figure out. Like, I don't even have Angry Birds on my phone. I think I'm that guy who doesn't. And I've played Freedom Force, and it's a cool, cool, cool game. I really dug that, so... Thumbs up, Ben. Good, good, good on you, man. Uh, he mentions, um, I've got to say, I agree with Alex Ross on his reaction to Professor Zoom's murder of Iris West. Events like that just don't have any place in a setting where a man can shrink himself to six inches tall and fight crime. Good moral upbringing can make a man out of a demigod, and a half-breed Atlantean is the king of the sea. I'm not quite so particular on exact dates, since I didn't read these books as they were coming out. But there were several moments that collectively marked the shift in DC Comics from a wondrous, heroic universe to something darker, rougher, and more flawed. The death of Arthur Jr., the death of Iris, and a few other awful stories pushed the characters and the setting into the shadows they have never recovered. It's a source of sorrow for me, especially since comics were just coming into their own when these things happened. DC was telling better, more rational stories, characters were growing, and they were just beginning to achieve a balance between wonder, adventure, drama, and humor. I suppose that's why I love Alex Ross's Justice so much. It's the best elements of that era without the silliest bits and without that shift into darkness. Hmm. Good points. Always well points. Yeah. He's got the, he's got the smarts. Um, or finally, and I imagine this is hardly worth saying, but don't listen to Frank about how long you spend on your entries. I'm most interested in hearing the characters themselves discussed, and the art design aspects aren't as fascinating to me, so discuss away, gents. I'm glad you feel that way, because this one was a long one. <laughs> They're always long. We just, we've just long since given up trying to... I was always hoping we could trim these down a little, and then I realized, no, it's just pointless. They're all going to be three hours. It's just the way it is. Pretty much. Uh, we got an email from David M. Gutierrez, and he mentions, and you want to talk about cheated? Robin 2, the original Robin, is barely shoehorned in. It's horrible. This cover was horribly laid out. The whole thing stinks to high heaven. I love Ernie Cologne, but he's getting a Northwind demerit for this draft. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Northwind has become <laughs> code for a bad mark. That's just, that's just too perfect. Well played, David. Well played. 
Uh, heard from Derek Crabb. He wrote in, as to Omega Men, I can't necessarily stand up for them in the way that Rob has, buying the title on a monthly basis. However, at the height of Logo, Lobo's popularity in the 90s, I did seek out many of the back issues that featured his early appearances in Omega Men. Um, the, the whole point of this is because we question, does anyone, did anyone ever come to Omega Men's defense? And he doesn't either here, by the way. Um, not really. He says, unlike Shag, I have a genuine fondness for cosmic superhero comics. And as he recommended an Adam Strange story, might I also recommend to Rob the 2009 comic series Rebels, of which Adam Strange and the Omega Men play a fairly decent part in. I'm not really sure Shag would care for it or not. Probably not. While there are some nods to Legion of Superheroes history and its cosmic story in it is a cosmic story, and Starfire is a prominent character. All I can say is when Abnett and Lanning, Guardians of the Galaxy... Wait. All I can say is that when the Abnett and Lanning, Guardians of the Galaxy, or Nova, was my cosmic comics fix at Marvel, the 28 issues of Rebels was my cosmic fix from DC Comics. There is also a wonderful interpretation of Starro, which I think would make for a great addition to the cinematic Justice League universe. Um, you know what, Derek? Actually, I, I want to address this first, then we'll let Rob see if he wants to read Rebels. I actually read, no. oh jeez, I actually read Legion, uh, the series that predated Rebels, which was Legion 89, like Legion, I don't remember exactly when it started, but every year they would change the name of the comic. It was like Legion 89, right. Legion 90, Legion 91, and I actually bought, I think, every issue up until Rebels number one, ironically. I, I loved the Legion series. I really dug the characters. I liked what was going on with Vril Dox. He was a real asshole. I just really liked that character. I liked what was going on with the space stuff there. I, I did. I dug it. I did not like Rebels simply because I felt like they sort of flipped it on its head where the, the heroes had become on the run, and I hated, like, his baby was the bad guy and all that stuff. I just, I didn't dig that. And maybe it was a good run. I have, you were not the only person to tell me that that interpretation of Starro was really freaking cool. I've actually heard that a few times now. Um, so maybe you've got something there, but in general, uh, I enjoyed the Legion series, but did not, the first issue or two of Rebels didn't grab me and I dropped it. So he goes on to ask, are you guys going to do who's who update 87 before who's who in Star Trek? Um, for some reason, I've been greatly anticipating the prospect, prospect of you guys discussing Star Trek. Uh, also, technically, it predates any DC Comics updates by some months. You make a fair point. You do. For chronological. However, and, and Rob, you can tell me if I'm speaking out of turn here, but I, at least as far as what the legal documents have laid out, I believe our plan is to cover the DC Universe-specific titles first. Uh, if nothing else, just to get through the damn things. Because, again, we're doing this till like, 2017. Um, so we'll go update 87. Well, actually, we're going to go... Yeah, update 87, update 88, we'll do the annuals from 89, then we'll do who's who in the DC Universe, which is the Loose Leaf edition, the Loose Leaf updates, then sort of it becomes fair game of whether we hit Legion first, the who's who in the Legion first, or we hit who's who in Star Trek first, or who's who in Impact, or who's who in Rob's favorite baseball players, um, you know, whatever whatever's next. Yeah, you, we might have to talk amongst our lawyers. I'm not sure I totally grok all that, but okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Again, you'll hear from my attorney. It's fine. I'm not even talking to you now. <laughs> it's the law firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. I like Wolfram and Hart, personally. But go ahead. <laughs> uh, we got an email from Mike Cherosquiro. Speaking of Enigma, that David Mazzuccelli answer for him has always been a favorite of mine, and I've often said the same thing Rob said. How amazing would it have been if Mazzuccelli could have stayed on the Batman title for a long run and gotten to draw all those cool villains? The mind boggles at the thought. Yeah, I mean, if, if Frank Miller and Mazzuccelli had done just like a year 
on Batman, that would have been like the best year of Batman ever done. You know, that would be probably like a trade that they'd still be printing today, making money from. It really is a I, shame they only did those those four issues. Well, I don't think he even had to be Frank. You know, Dave yeah, well, could have turned out that, you know, quality work for somebody else. I, I guess. I'm just saying that team, though, they really, sure. the, 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 you know, on year well, one. So, But we know Frank has the ability to put out some stinkers, though, too. We so. do. Well, um, what else did Mazzuccelli do besides the Batman stuff, the Daredevil stuff? Did he, go in, did he do independent and do he, something he, on his own? He's done a ton of self-published stuff. Yeah, he, okay. he's like forcibly – he pushed himself out. Like he didn't cho- – you know, chose to not yeah. do anything other than that. So, yeah, he's done his own thing. He's published his own self-published comics and he's been quite successful at that. So good for him. And I've read some of it and it's, it's interesting stuff. It's, it's – uh, he clearly didn't want it. He didn't want that career. You know, he didn't want to be a superhero guy. All right. Uh, he says, slight correction to what Shag said about Ragdoll and Gail Simone's Secret Six. That version of the character was actually the original Ragdoll's son, not the brother, which only added to the absolute creepiness of it all. It was a great character, though, and added a lot of dark, twisted humor to that awesome series. I could have sworn it was the brother. Like, I don't remember it being the dad at all, but pff, whatever. Clearly my memory's gone. Uh, her from... Calum Nauer, and he just told me on Twitter how to pronounce his name, but I didn't check before we started recording, so I'm terribly sorry, Calum. Uh, he said, just finished listening and really enjoyed it. Couldn't have agreed more with Rob when you guys were doing the listener feedback section, and someone pointed out Poison Ivy didn't start out as a redhead, but Rob said every lady every lady was better as a redhead. Totally agree. Gotta love the redheads. There you go. <laughs> Heard from our buddy Zoom Yukinori. Uh, from Japan. He says, this is pure speculation on my part, but I do not believe Jerry Ordway's cover was late, uh, but rejected. By the way, what we're talking about is the Ernie Cologne cover for the last issue of Who's Who. There was also a Jerry Ordway cover drawn for Who's Who, and we were speculating that perhaps Jerry didn't get published because it was late. Anyway, what what Zoom is saying is he doesn't think it's because of lateness. He says, it appears that Ernie Cologne was asked to redo Ordway's layouts so that it would be more in line with the other Who's Who covers, whereby all the characters seem to be interacting with each other in the same space. While Jerry's art is brilliantly impressive, as always, it is deviating from the theme with larger-than-life depictions of the question, and Vic Sage, I think, Robot Robot Man 1, the puzzler, Arazagul, Ragman and Raven, and it appears that Mr. Cologne has carried forward some elements of Mr. Ordway's original cover design, notably the race between Reverse Flash, Reactron, the Ray, and Quizlet, as well as the placement of Red Tornado. But it would have been nice if it had also used the Robin, Ragdoll, Robin, Riddler, Richard, Dragon, Quakemaster fights as well. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting observation. Yeah, I didn't notice that. I, uh, I asked uh, Bob Greenberg about this, and unfortunately oh. he had no memory of why that cover was rejected. He just said he remembered that that uh, Cologne, he said, we, that why they asked, as he put it, the speedy Mr. Cologne was was brought in. So uh, I think it's, Zoom's theory might be right. It, clearly that Ernie didn't have a lot of time to get it done. Yeah. And so uh, it seems like your theory makes a lot of sense, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that it was rejected not for the art, of course, because the art's gorgeous, but because layout-wise it just didn't match the rest of the covers. So that, that, that does, does make sense. But unfortunately, Bob just did not. In fact, I sent Bob the link from our Tumblr of the Ordway cover. And he said that was the first time he'd seen that piece of art since the original book in 1987. Wow. He'd literally not seen it. Since oh, then. wow. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, we heard from our buddy Luke Giaconetti. Uh, it's kind of a two-part piece. I'll do the first part. Rob will do the next part. He says, uh, oh, one quick thing as well. You guys talked about some quality characters in this episode, including Quicksilver, the Ray, and Red B. But did you know 
which of the quality characters was the longest lived after DC bought them? Answer, Blackhawk, who starred in over 100 issues of the title of DC. Of course, it was canceled several times during that run, first in 1968, then again in 77, after being revived with the original numbering, and finally in 84, after the second original numbering ended, ending with issue 273. And he said, Blackhawk had a great run, but did you know, all caps, what is the one quality book which continued to DC uninterrupted for 30 years? Answer, G.I. Combat. Which ran Whoa. from ran at DC from number forty four through number two eighty eight, spanning from nineteen fifty four through nineteen eighty four. Look at that! All right now, was that um, that wasn't Sergeant Rock's book? No, it? no, that was okay. uh, Sergeant Rock first appeared in Our Army at War, and That's then right. and then that was just his book, and then eventually they just changed it to, to Sergeant Rock. Yeah, it was like point. right around issue three hundred or four hundred. Yeah, they something the like that. Yeah. Heard from our buddy Little Russell Burbage uh, from Superior City. He said, uh, I am very proudly and humbly from Superior City. We have a Red Bee Festival every June 31st that attracts dozens of tourists. In high school, we studied about bees and how they, can, they can't see the color red, which may not mean anything, but seems deep anyway. So, yeah, Red Bee might be a loser, but he's our loser. Leave him be. <laughs> and included with his missive, uh, he sent us uh, a picture of the sign as you enter Superior City. It says, Welcome to Superior City, population 265,405, home of the Red Bee, Golden Age member of the All-Star Squad. Awesome. Very so, nice. yeah, I'm glad I'm glad little Russell Burber just settled down for at least two months. <laughs> uh, we heard from our buddy Charlie Niemeyer. Uh, he says, so I'm running a little behind in episodes, but I've caught up with a who's who. I heard some comments about the Phantom Zone and thought I'd help clear up the lack of knowledge over the Phantom Zoner who worked at the Daily Planet. Yeah, last episode when we talked about the Phantom Zone, they revealed that, yes, there was a depowered Kryptonian working at the Daily Planet, which I freaked out over. <laughs> and they said Charlie Niemeyer uh, had done some research on this. So here we go, back into it. Quicks Yui, I guess that's how you say it. First appeared in the Silver Age story, Superman 157, when Superman let him out of the Phantom Zone because he completed his sentence. While he was out, he planned on tricking Superman into a gold kryptonite trap. However, Superman discovered that Quixie had, commun- had commuted his crimes while under mental control. Committed his crimes while under mental control. Learning this, Quixie tripped the trap himself, exposing himself to the Gold K, which took away his powers and memories. Sometime between that story and the first issue of the Phantom Zone miniseries, Superman and Perry White helped set up Quixie with a new life on as Earthman Charlie Quixie skill, uh, including a job at the Daily Planet. He actually ends up being one of the central characters in that miniseries. And like Sphinx Magoo mentioned, thanks for the plug, Sphinx, I did cover it on my Superman in the Bronze Age and Charlie's Geek Cast back in October. Crazy sauce. I uh, heard from Boston Moss. He said, regarding Robot number one, Robot Man number one, I don't think they showed Robot uh, Man number one's transition back to a real body in a story. I think it was just referenced when Robot Man as Grayson testified in the America versus the JSA series. That's interesting. We kind of speculated that that was like a DC Comics Presents backup tale, which seems to be our, my default speculation for everything. It makes no <laughs> sense. But thank you for that, Boston. Uh, Someone wrote in just under the name of The Flash. He said, I just want to make a quick correction. You said Cord is where Sinestro comes from, but Sinestro actually comes from Kurigar. Cord is where he got his yellow ring. Way to go, Rob. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I heard from Andy Capellish. Very angry. He's, yes. He says, it's not Raish Agul. No, he says it's not effing Raish Agul. 
Okay, well, I was trying to be polite. It's not Ra's al Ghul. Hey, you no, said it. Yeah. Nowhere in the Arabic language is Aish a noise. Raz. It's pronounced Raz Agul. So there you go, folks. From the horse's mouth, I guess. Um, J. David Weeder, who runs, again, that Dave's Daredevil podcast, he said, I officially back up what Shag Matthews said about Reed Starman, the greatest long-form mainstream series to ever grace the stands. He also said, Shag getting his fur ruffled over the Red Bee has made my week. And then he sent me a, a really cool picture of the Red Bee and told me to make it my Facebook profile page. <laughs> Which you did not do. I, well, I didn't. That's true. Uh, Tony D over on Twitter also gave us a lot of support for the Red Bee. Thank you. <laughs> Michael Bailey also gave us some information on those backup stories with the awkward moments between Dick Grayson and Elena. And uh, again, folks, we heard from lots and lots and lots and lots of other folks. Uh, a lot of likes. A lot of kind words across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google Plus, and Tumblr. Thank you so much. I'm sorry we didn't get to mention every single person by name, but know that you guys are all just such an integral part of the show, and we love going through who's who with you. So uh, I also want to give shout-outs. Thank you to some folks who posted about us on their blogs. Uh, Comic Book Commentary, Angus Sight, the Supergirl blog, gave us a shout-out on his Reactron entry. Speed Force, uh, about The Flash, talked about the, pod, the Who's Who podcast. And, of course, Cisco's Who's This over at Cisco's blog at Geekery. We really appreciate that. When you're on the social medias, folks, don't forget, use the hashtag PoundFWPodcast. Otherwise, we can't find your stuff. Rob, any closing thoughts? No. All right. Looking, looking forward to next issue, issue 21. We are on a race to the finish line, folks. I can't wait to get to that appendix. I want to see what's in there. Yes, if, if who's who, if 26 issues of who's who is the Star Wars trilogy, we have just destroyed Jabba and his palace. Ah, that's, that's a good way to put it. In terms yeah. of the percentage. So. Now it's just a bunch of friggin' teddy bears <laughs> yeah, from here on out, folks. Nothing left but, e, but Dagobah and Ewoks. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, until next time, who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Nitric and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Oh man. We forgot Slipknot. Justice League, I'm Shiny Knight. No, I am. You're the stupid monster. Ha! Have at thee! Have at thee! Fine, I don't care. I'm Vigilante. He's way cooler.